Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of What in the History. My name is Dan Brady, and I am jo joined by the co-hostess with the mostess, Johnny Smith. Johnny, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic tonight, Dan. How are you? Oh, man, I'm alive. Ready to hey, talk. <laughs> right, ready to talk about some history for sure. Uh, so today we are going to talk about the only king of comic books in history. We are going to talk about Mr. Jack Kirby. He created or co-created over 150 plus comic book characters, even including some of the more popular ones, including Captain America, the X-Men, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, the Mighty Thor, Darkseid, and the New Gods. He has influenced comic book artists all over. He has blazed the path for how comics books were created and illustrated. He is a man whose work ethic is completely unmatched. I'm really excited about this one. You know, yeah. um, Captain America is my favorite. Oh, yeah. that uh, One of his first uh, superhero characters was Captain America, uh, co-created with Joe Simon. He could have stopped right there, and he, he still would have been top shelf to me. Right. Um, as we're going to find out, like, a lot of his process influences uh, – artists today like uh, I was watching the interview with Frank Miller the guy who wrote Sin City also uh, wrote Wolverine and Daredevil uh, he was asked in an interview you worked with Jack Kirby why don't you tell us about him and he's like I thought this was a 10 minute interview not an hour and a half right on I, I mean you'll find interviews of every comic book artist nowadays they've been influenced by him they read his books his art he was able to make it look like a character was moving across the page uh with just little lines here and there he was able to make it look like captain america was punching hitler on the page or you know the human torch was flying <clears throat> so you uh you ready to strap into this one, sir? I got my seatbelt all ready to go. Awesome. All right. Well, this is episode six, and we are talking about the king of comics, Jack Kirby. Uh, Jack Kirby was born Jacob Kurtzberg on August 28, 1917. He was the son of immigrant parents, Benjamin and Rosemary Kurtzberg, they resided on Essex Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Two years later, uh, Jacob's younger brother, David, would join the household, in which at the time the Kurtzberg moved into a slightly larger but still cramped Suffolk Street tenement house. Kirby's parents migrated from Austria sometime around the turn of the century. Um, Jack would later say, my father had insulted a member of German aristocracy. Jack recalled the German was an expert marksman, challenged uh, my father to a duel. My father knew he'd be killed, so we decided to emigrate uh, to the United States. All my relatives chipped in for tickets. <clears throat> so when that's, Ben... That's wild. <laughs> 
You know, I never in my life thought I'd uh, quote Kenny Rogers, but I guess you got to know when to fold them. <laughs> and know when to hold them. And that definitely wasn't the case in this situation. But Ben was a tailor by trade, and he obtained intermittent employee employment in the New York City garment factories, usually getting up before dawn to walk to work. So very sun up to sundown, hardworking man. Whenever I think about people working in like the garment factories, I always think about such a miserable existence. It definitely sounds like, just like it. Because uh, as I'll explain here, you know, they still were hurting for money. So even though his dad was working his ass off, he still wasn't making enough. And that's usually the case. Um, so, uh, Jack would recall, you know, when, even when he was young, I was aware that income was necessary. It was that way in all the families in our neighborhood, whatever you could bring home counted. Uh, I was terrible at selling papers. You'd have to go to this building and pick up your papers from the back of the truck. As the shortest guy there, the other boys would run right over me. So not only... From the age he could hold a job, he had a job. He worked as a paper boy, and then he had a wide array of messenger jobs, sign painting jobs. But as each one of those... I mean, this was a tougher America, too. You know, people were built uh, from top stock. You know, they were used to working hard for very little. Right. <clears throat> oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, probably since like five or six, this man was working. Um the money helped the Kurtzbergs buy groceries and his parents would allow him to keep some of his money for his own entertainment. Um, at this time, uh, Jacob Kurtzberg was known as young Jakey, which I, I would hate that nickname. That's why I don't like being called Danny. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Oh, you don't like Danny? No, makes me feel so See, young and childish. My given name is Johnny. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't mind it. I like it. I just, I've never been a Danny. I've always been Dan or Daniel, if you're my See, mother. Every time I've looked at you, in my heart, I've heard the word Danny. <laughs> Fuck you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so after five episodes, what in the history is over? We're packing it up. <laughs> the pipes, the pipes are calling. Anyway, <laughs> back to young Jakey. Uh, young Jakey's parents would allow him to keep some of his money. And I don't mean that in any mean way possible. I think they were, they were nice enough to let this guy keep some of his money that he is generating yeah, for his family. Like they were struggling. Mm-hmm. So he would uh he would go to uh the local cinema, watch movies, he would buy pulps, which is just basically uh <clears throat> comic book strips taken from the newspapers and just compiled in a book. So not really okay. com comic books yet, but newspapers did have comic strips. Okay, very early ones, I assume. He would take these home and he would copy them. He would 
he was already drawing at a young age. Um, he would say, uh, <clears throat> I learned to write in the movies and new newspapers, uh, newspaper strips were in my drawing school. I learned everything from them. Uh, and at this time, uh, Kurtzberg would soon become a member of the Suffolk Streak game. Uh, See, that's the type of statement that you would assume is going to be followed by, and I got all my nutrition from potatoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so around this time, he also joined the Suffolk Street Gang. Uh, he would say each street had its own gang of kids. We fight all the time. We'd cross over roofs, bombard the New York Norfolk Street Gang with bottles and rocks, and mix it up with them. Uh, and then around this time, there's also the Boys Brotherhood Republic was one of many organizations that were founded to help keep kids out of trouble um, and put them on the this path. This sounds terrible. This all sounds terrible. Like, I don't even understand what they're fighting for. Oh, they would, from what I've read, they would just fight to fight, you know. Street. Oh, Jake, he looked at me. We got a brawl. Yeah, uh, street pride, basically, because each street had one of these little kid gangs. So it's See, and that was before video games, and these parents don't even know what they're complaining about. Could be so much worse. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Spanish Inquisition happened without video games, so, you know. See, Maybe. video games It's where it's at. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. The Holocaust happened. There was no video games. Right. Uh, so, uh, Johnny making <laughs> making political statements. <laughs> so, it was in this uh, Boys Brotherhood Republic uh, that he got his first taste of actually drawing uh, for a public source. Um, it was a good place to make friends in my neighborhood. Uh, with my height, all I, I needed all the friends I could get. Uh, Jake so that his, short guy's complex was rough back then. Oh, yeah. So young Jakey and his new acquaintances launched the club's newsletter, the BBR Reporter. Wasn't much of a publication. Uh, the members had to practically beg their family and neighbors to buy it. But it did feature the earliest published cartooning by uh, the future Jack Kirby. Like the comic shows I produce. <laughs> yes. Uh, when he wasn't reading or fighting, he was drawing. Uh, the visions he saw in his head, uh, many came from newspaper strips. And when he didn't have the paper, he'd draw on whatever was around. Um, he would get dailies news in a journal. He recalled sometimes we would get them out of neighbor's trash cans that hadn't been used to rat fish. He said, I read Barney, Google, and Jigs, and Maggie, and then I sat down to draw Barney, Google, and Jigs, and Maggie. These were early uh, newspaper strip characters. Dan, I gotta, I gotta stop you again. You made a statement that is very of the times. Like, we got the newspaper that wasn't used to wrap fish. Yes. Like, that's not a daily concern for many people anymore. 
you know it's funny in my notes i put johnny will probably say something about this <laughs> <laughs> good call on that because that's just that's a wild statement like i've never heard in my life that i never even thought about go right. get the paper that was used to wrap the fish what Right, or even go down to the market and buy a whole fucking fish. Yeah, but suck that. I like my fish canned. So, uh, his parents, <laughs> his parents realized that their boy wasn't gonna stop drawing. Uh, even though they were strapped for cash, they began buying him large pads of drawing paper. Uh, Kirby would fill each tablet so rapidly that they begin to ration them. And with his parents' approval, he dropped out of school just shy of the 12th grade. Um, and that's how critical <laughs> it was in the, uh, the families that, in that time to have that weekly paycheck coming in. Um, he went around Manhattan um, with... <sighs> you know, with his drawings and stuff, trying to land a job. Um, he was worried yeah. that his you know, father... You know, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of information you're handing me here, Dan. Yeah. First off, you say it like it was a heroin habit. Like his family knew he wasn't going to quit at this point. <laughs> he dropped out of high school because, you know, like, I, that's hilarious. But then you just said the statement. He went to try and get a job with his drawings. Like, yes. to me, in in the world I live in, that sounds like the most absurd thing. Like, some guy just walking around with pictures, look what I colored. You got any work? Well, like a, like a crazy you gotta, person. You got to think about it. That's his resume. Look, I do I mean, this. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just when I think about it, it just, it just comes off as a crazy thing. Yeah, uh, man. Like one of those hopeful dreams. Like I'm gonna take my singing to New York City. <laughs> I'm gonna take my drawings, Mama, and I'm gonna get us a job. I'm like what? What the fuck is? If you say so, I hope so, son. This this is also his work ethic and his drive too. Like, um, we're gonna cover how quick he did comics. But his work ethic is above everybody else that we're going to talk about in this episode. Nice. I like a good work ethic. I wouldn't say good. I would say probably the best possible work ethic anyone could have. Like, it's incredible. Um, so he was able to land a few minor illustration jobs, uh, minor in both importance and salaries. Uh, these jobs turned around his parents' attitude about uh, there not being money in drawing. And it was arranged uh, to for Jack to enroll in the Fame Art School, the Pratt Institute. But to, after one day of college, uh, Ben Kurtzberg lost his job and his son had to quit. Oh, that sucks. That's, mm -hmm. that, that sucks one day. Before he got paid to do his his artwork, though, his parents were probably like, oh, you're still doing your little drawings? <laughs> right. So, how what you still doing? You still playing with your pencil? Okay, well, we just saw them. Go ahead and look at drawings. I'm, I'm sure they didn't understand it, from but from everything I read, they were supportive, which is all you can ask for. Positive to hear. 
uh, despite the setbacks, he continued searching for work. Uh, for the time, he would he and his father would take a, a push cart concession wagon uh, to the outlying areas of Manhattan to try and sell fabric and stuff like that. That's a rough. That's a yeah. rough hustle. And hey, Jack, hey, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Hey, check this fabric. <laughs> and oh, what you don't like blue? We got greens, we got reds. What you need? We got fabric of all kinds, man. I mean, it, it's no different than selling knockoff watches. I beg to differ. <laughs> I, I can sell knockoff watches. I don't think, unless I'm at a craft convention or a senior citizen's home specifically there for that purpose, there's no way I'm just selling women in a cart, especially the way I look. Hey, you want some linen? Get the hell out of here. You're also forgetting that it was a push cart. They didn't have a donkey. Oh, so it was just mobile. They were pushing. They had to stay on flat land. You can't lose your fabric downhill. We can't <laughs> have that. So uh, Jack would also paint uh, signs for other vendors, and he would make some so money doing this. So always hustling. That's what's up. I like it. I respect it. I love it. Right. In uh, the spring of 1935, Jack landed his first job drawing. Jack answered a newspaper ad for artists, and he led the, it led him to the heart of New York Times Square and the Max Flesher Animation Studio. They were the producers of Popeye and Betty Boop cartoons. Oh, That's right. The man who Drew the Mighty Thor also drew Popeye and Betty Boop at one point. That's pretty dope. I remember when I was younger, I used to really enjoy both of those. So um, he started in a bottom feeding position, opaquing, uh, opaquing the cells. I can say that word, but I butcher every name I see. Uh, and it was paid poorly. And the work was lacking on creativity. And he didn't get along to, with his bosses. They thought he was too cocky, too eager to move up. Um, because cartoon studios expected you to work four years, um, learn your craft, and advance to a position over time. But young Kurtzberg, uh, he every week he would audition for a new position over and over again for the next run of the ladder. And in record, record time, he did advance to clean up work. Then it was on to assistant animating position. Uh, none of these positions paid well, and they involved very little creativity in the animation. In the animation, you do what you're told. You're copying other artists, and you're drawing and working in other artist styles with characters you didn't create. Um, <clears throat> so this, this lack of creativity, this lack of being able to do what he want, kind of, kind of made Jack realize that animation wasn't uh, the right ladder for him to climb up. It had to drive him nuts. Oh yeah. Uh, he would meet a man named HT Elmo. He operated the Lincoln, uh, features syndicate an outfit that sounds more impressive than it was uh, he was just seeking escape huh. from the from Fleischer's 
Jack bombarded Elmo with samples and he landed a position with meager salary. It's less than what he made drawing Popeye, but with a lucrative uh, bonus if his output boosted the syndicate sales. As a job drawing car, uh, comic panels for syndication, though he just... Um, so he wasn't getting paid, but he's being able to draw what he wanted. Okay, so some creative freedom. So at this time, like all the all the popular comic book strips or the newspaper strips were locked up. So what a lot of people do was uh, <clears throat> was like just basically drawing what everybody else saw. Like you saw a lot of knockoff characters. Okay. I get what you're saying. Like different versions of Superman, different versions of Felix the Cat, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like this place, um, Lincoln Syndicate, they would basically offer a cheap knockoff product compared to what the other newspaper strips were selling. So they were a cheaper paper. Right, right. Okay, it was, okay. But he got to do whatever he wanted. Right. They would uh they would sell the the newspaper or the comics to lower level newspapers. So Okay. Oh, I had a strip off my shirt. <clears throat> I was wearing a sweatshirt, but the, the AC in the house ebbs and flows, and I just started sweating. Probably in 10 minutes, I'll be cold again. Right on. Uh, so basically, uh, Jack's like idea or his own personal uh, take on the American dream was you make your bosses rich, and they'll take care of you. This is what Jack believed his entire life, even though it never worked for him. That is awful. Uh, oh, yeah. The, a very reoccurring theme here is going to be how underpaid Jack Kirby was. That's sad. Yeah. Um, so... He worked all day and worked all night. He produced more work than anybody had thought humanly possible. Most of the time, uh, Jack wound up drawing at home in the Kurtzberg family flat, uh, working on the kitchen table as his mother scurried around him cooking and cleaning. Elmo decided trying to try marketing several daily strips, all drawn by Kurtzberg and different styles and under different names so he could produce more comic book strips all written by the same person but nobody would know for okay. instance for instance jack curtis drew the black buccaneer uh cyclone burke was written by bob brown kirby he even went back okay. to drawing uh, Popeye in the fashion, a knockoff uh, by Teddy called Sacco the Sea Dog. Jack loved the diversity Sacco of... Sacco the Sea Dog? Yep. That sounds like a fun guy. 
<laughs> Come on, kids. You want to get drunk with Sacco? I would not take my wife around that guy, though. <laughs> um, so he loved Sacco. He, he loved the diversity of this job. And he would vault from world to world, spending his morning drawing pirates and his afternoon in outer space. Um, he enjoyed he enjoyed doing political cartoons because uh, Jack Kirby, and it would later come to influence uh, comic books down the road, just like Stan Lee. He didn't keep his mouth shut. He was very opinionated, and he was very open about it. Oh yeah, like I'm. Uh, I am very familiar with the role that uh, comic books played as far as propaganda wise, especially when it came to World War II. Yes, um, I actually wrote a uh, college thesis on that. You went to college? Yeah, I went to Point Park University. Oh, sounds like a uh, definitely a very. I forgot the word I was going to use. Anyway, back to our story. Wow. Prestigious, prestigious university. This, well, I, I, hey, can you come over and take the knife out of my back, dude? Good Lord, this is painful. That's for the Danny, Danny comment earlier, you bastard. Uh, I, see, I, I see. I see. The problem is, and other friends will tell you this. You should have never told me you don't like to be called Danny because it's going to come up at the worst times. Oh, I know. I know it is. And I knew that as soon as I said it. And you're I know, like, I know blah, there's. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It's all right, Danny. I know there's several people that are listening to this that I'm going to receive messages that say, What up, Danny? Uh, the next time I'm with you, that you have a set that you feel disappointed in. I'm going to assure you that Danny is okay. <laughs> or maybe I'll just come up singing. I'll be like, Danny, are you okay? Are you okay, Danny? Danny, are you okay? When do I have a set that I'm proud of? Then then it's fucking coming tomorrow. <laughs> um, we'll so, moonwalking. <laughs> so, uh, one of the biggest, during this time, he was the only person saying that a war with Hitler was inevitable. So he called it uh, quite a few years prior. I think this is 37 or so. Old Jakey. Old Jakey Kirby. Yep. So uh, he didn't love the take-home pay from Elmo. <clears throat> and uh, he, you know, all the promised bonuses uh, never appeared, never materialized. And it was yet another in the first in the life of Jacob Kurtzberg. He can write, he can draw, he can create the best comics out there with a volume and speed that stunned everyone, but he couldn't seem to make a deal that would turn his creativity intake into take-home pay. Either you know, this is just a quick armchair diagnosis. But it sounds like uh, from early on, he had problems with his height and being a small dude. And I feel like maybe that affected his confidence and willingness to be assertive in those situations. It yeah. may have been a lifelong problem for him. Well, I'm not saying he wasn't able to assert himself, but I watched a lot of interviews 
And the man talks like me. He stutters a lot. He says, um, all the time compared to a man like Stan Lee, who's just great with words and had uh, this just energy about him. And that's why we really... Right. So, you know, and hey, you said he talked like you, so there was obviously nothing wrong with him because you're a beautiful little bunny rabbit. So, so <laughs> nothing, nothing wrong with uh, Jakey Kirby, nothing wrong with Danny. <laughs> I hate you so much. Um, so, <clears throat> Elmo started downsizing. And while Jack was continuing to draw the features that survived, he redoubled his efforts to find someplace else to work. Um, but right around this time, something new started appearing on newspaper racks. Um, we know them now as comic books. Oh, shit. <laughs> but these started as like, uh, as reprints from newspapers and someone would like, uh, Reput the panels not always in sequence. The publisher would offer 64 pages in color for a dime. These magazines were so so successful that all the popular strips were quickly locked up. In 1938, Jack Kirby landed a draw, job drawing comic books. He arrived at the studio of Eisner and Iger about the same time the first issue of Action Comics was arriving on the newsstands. It featured a new strip. So this is what, around 33? 38. 38, okay. Something big's about to happen. Uh, oh, yeah. A new comic book character just arrived on the newspaper stands, written by Siegel and Schuster. It was about oh, no. a guy. It was about a guy who could leap tall buildings in a single bound, oh, and it oh, jumps shit. and it jumpstart an entire industry. Of course, I'm talking about Superman. I, for the record, do not like Superman at all. Nope, not me either. If I don't, I don't want to, and all you nerds that are listening to this, I don't want to read about a man who can't be beaten. Right? Like that's oh, not. Oh, it's kryptonite, kryptonite. Every guy, that's, oh, who is he facing? It doesn't matter because what are they going to use to cripple him? Oh, kryptonite. Where'd they get it? Who knows? Some wild shit happened, but it's kryptonite. Right. Uh, like, come <clears throat> on. It, it's whack for us. It's not for me. I'm more of a Marvel guy myself. I know you are too. Uh, heavy, heavy duty. But Jack would later call this moment. Uh, he said, I knew comics were here to stay. The, well, look at him sounding all, all fancy and flashy. Right. Um, That's a sound, right? Did you just fart? No, that's my chair. My chair is creaking. Uh, okay. I'll try and I'll try and stay straight. If I farted, believe me, I would be telling you all about it. So at Eisner and Iger, um, they would package comic book materials for seven uh, publishers, some overseas. Jack felt instantly at home, and especially with the page format, uh, newspaper strips were small and confining, 
and they advance storylines and baby steps. This was a great place to for Kirby to learn from other artists. They swap pointers, critiques, and ideas. There is so much to be learned from uh, Willie Eisner, who was only six months his senior, but he seemed like an adult and a solid role model. Eisner was an elder statesman of the comic book industry, having been in it for almost two years. And then he would go off to write a very famous comic book character uh, known as the Spirit. The Spirit? Yep. I don't, you know what? I don't know if I'm familiar with him. Uh, he was a very big comic book character around this time in the 40s and 50s. They they tried a uh, a like Sin City style movie a couple years ago, and it was complete garbage. But what was his deal? What was the spirit's deal? If I remember correctly, and I probably am not, but the spirit was a detective that was killed. <clears throat> so he would come back and and his supernatural form and fight crimes. That sounds very, uh, blue lives matter. <laughs> I, I guess that won't be a uh, boo lives matter. Wow. That's terrible, Johnny. Uh, tip, tip your waitresses. I'll be here all week. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> here, since I have my computer right here, the Spirit is a fictional mass crime fighter created by cartoonist Will Eisner. He first appeared June 2nd, 1940. Uh, the Spirit chronicles the adventures of a mass vigilante who fights crime with the blessing of the city's police uh, commissioner. He's a vigilante that has blessing from the police commissioner. Yep. I don't like it already. Yeah. Uh, Smells corrupt. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we're not reading no, about Willie Eisner. Yeah, uh, we got to move on from this guy before I get on my soapbox. <laughs> Please don't. That box will probably break. I'm sorry. I am sorry. Oh, wow. Boom, bop. That's a shot right there. <laughs> Every time I hear the name Danny, I'll greet it with an insult. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> um, so, him and Jack have a mutual respect. Um, Eisner would, he envied Jack's determination and the thought the man could draw like he talked. His powerful, um, unique, and quirky so like there there's a mutual respect here uh eisner kind of they called that gumption right i like his gumption uh eisner would say if you ask kurtzberg can you handle this the answer was yes even before he heard what you needed needed him to handle like eight it. pages in a day sure i can do that jack uh, Jack envied Eisner's skill at assembly, his ability to run a company, even the way he dressed. Like everyone else, he would uh, envy the spirit, which was 
the best comics of the 40. Jack would call it, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, I like that attitude. That's, that's how I approach comedy. You want to do this? Yeah, I'll figure out what it is later. So also at this time, Jack was uh, basically trying to sell original characters um, just because he heard uh, a man named Bob Kane, an artist he met at Eisner and Iger, had sold Harry Dolan, uh, Dolanfeld's company, a new strip about a mass vigilante. Uh, can you guess who that was? Do you know the name was Bob Zora? Kane? Bob Kane. Bob Kane. Don't say anything. A mass vigilante. Was it Batman? Who is it? Yep. Uh, yeah. My old nemesis. So he oh, sold. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> not going to do that. So Jack was trying to do the same. He, he would always get the same answers. He always heard, sorry, we have all the materials we need. Finally, I. Oh, I get that all the time. Finally. Uh, at the suggestions of some other artists, Jack did what they all did sooner or later, and he went over and enlisted in a sweatshop uh, ran by Victor Fox. Jack was on the staff for months. Many of them were spent drawing lackluster newspaper strips about uh, a man named the Blue Beetle as the first superhero he ever drew. Um, but you have to start somewhere. Uh, the money was oh, okay uh, <clears throat> where there was of it, but it basically sounds like he was paid on commission for comic book strips. So <clears throat> he was just turning these out day after day, new comics. So <clears throat> like at night, he produced pages of the solar legion which was a comic feature he sold to an entrepreneur named bert who in turn sold it to 10 publishers uh around this time fox hired a new editor by the name of joe simon <clears throat> oh okay to help supervise a writer the writers and artists the new uh editor was instantly impressed with Kurtzberg's productivity. Like Eisner, Simon was a seasoned veteran of the comic book industry. He spent a lot of time drawing comics for a shop called Funny Inc. But before that, he worked as a newspaper art director, a photo retoucher for Paramount Pictures, and a magazine illustrator. So he'd been around, he knew what to do, and he knew how to make comics. Simon even looked at an arm artist sample before he hired side by side um and simon and uh kirby would become good friends uh and they they were very strange standing next to each other simon was six foot three weighed in at 150 pounds oh <laughs> and jack weighed the same but was about a foot shorter oh he was about five four 150 yep. pounds? Yep. That's wild. Um, so he was like Jack in many ways, but like others, um, 
his Simon's dad was a tailor, just like Kirby's. But Simon would later explain one of the reasons Victor Fox hired me because I was wearing a very smart suit that my father had made me. And that was where Jack was at a disadvantage. My father made suits, but his father only made pants. Ha, the old pants making ass piece of shit. <laughs> ha, you ain't about nothing. Your dad only makes pants. Fuck you. You ain't nothing to me. So we make full suits. I can throw pants away all day, you piece of shit. <laughs> At this time, Simon was moonlighting on another comic strip called The Blue Bolt. Uh, it starred a space hero he created while at Funny Inc. And at this time, Joe was way behind on his deadline. And since Jack was so fast and eager for the work, the two teamed up. And then in Blue Bolts, you see them work for the first time. The first story was done before Simon met Jack. So that was all by Joe. <clears throat> oh. But shortly, um, you will start seeing uh, the stories written by Jack uh, Kirby. Uh, the covers were signed Kirby and Simon. And this is the first time we see uh, Jack Kirby knew his name. He was now Kirby forever. Uh, the change was no big deal for Jack, and it certainly wasn't because he wanted to conceal his Jewish heritage. <clears throat> Though it was said, if you wanted to see Jack become angry, make that suggestion to him. What, did he hid his name because he didn't want to be Jewish? Yep. Or he didn't want people to know he was Jewish? Yes. And that infuriated him. Oh, yeah. Huh, I wonder why. You'll see. Old okay. young Jakey's about to stack some fucking Nazis. What's this now? Oh, I'm ruining the big surprise, but Jack Kirby stacked bodies in World War II. Oh, okay. Let's get to the let's get to the body stacking. So we're we are starting on this way. We gotta get to Captain America first. So Jack was faster, and he was more willing to park his ass at a drawing table for long marathon stretches than Joe was. And Joe liked, or Jack liked the writing and the drawing, but he didn't like the ink like Joe did. Joe didn't mind inking, and he was also a genius in Jack's opinion at designing covers and the opening page, making the product look professional. That's very important. So Joe left Victor Fox and went to work for a publisher named Martin Goodman in the summer of 1939. Goodman's line of pulps were there and in trouble with the Federal Trade Commission. It was basically knockoff reprints without labeling them as such. And he was mm. des desperate for something else. Hearing that comics for the Common Tread issued uh, Marvel Comics number one, and its contents prepared by Funny Ink cover was featuring a fiery crime-fighting android named the Human Torch, written and drawn by a na man named Carl Burgos. Equally, okay. equally was exciting was the Submariner, an undersea anti-hero conceived and rendered by Bill Everett, Goodland's now 
Now, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get feedback for this, but I'm very curious. Is it Submariner? Or because I always care, called him the Sub Submariner. You know what I mean? Like more pronounced separation. Right. I, I've heard it pronounced Submariner, Submariner. If this Submariner. is that. If this is the hill we're going to die on, then so be it. Um, so his line went by many names, of which Timely Comics is what it was most commonly. He soon added a second title uh, called Daring Mystery Comics, which featured work by Joe Simon, mostly on a strip called The Fiery Mask, a gunman eager to... Goodman was eager to cut uh, Simon out of the loop. Oh, let's, no, Funny Ink out of the loop, and he hired Simon directly. Uh, the deal seemed like a good one, including profit participation and whatever new books he wants to write. But let me guess, it wasn't a great deal. Uh, for Joe Simon, it was. Uh, so Joe offered this to his buddy, Jack Kirby. Jack liked the money, but he couldn't bring himself to believe whatever feeble security uh, the weekly pay from Fox represented. Like, he, he didn't want to lose his job because he had a steady paycheck. But Joe needed... And, he was, and, and it took him a while to get that. He was going door to door with these drawings. Right. It was a wreck. But When the wind would blow, he'd mess up his folder, have to draw new drawings. It's crazy. But Joe needed Jack as much as Jack needed Joe. So it was arranged for Goodman to pay Jack a regular salary. It was a pretty good salary for the time. A beautiful, a beautiful love story. <laughs> well, it kind of is for the next few years. Um, Joe needed Jack as much as Jack needed Joe. <clears throat> so he gets a regular steady pay. Um, Goodman was wondering oh. why this guy needed to be paid so high, but Kirby quickly proved his worth. He was great and would produce so many pages, the weekly guarantees seemed like a bargain. Kirby had what he oh, wanted to join Joe, and from then on, for the next 16 years, they worked together oh. until the very and only a little thing like a world war would separate them, and even not for long. So, bum, bum, bum. oh yeah, I'm just trying to see where to pick up next. Um, so it wasn't long. They were in a timely office producing pages for Daring Mystery Comics, proving Simon Wright about Jack's skill and speed. The first new comic he and Joe created was a fast flop, uh, The Red Raven, and another an anthology fronted by a flying hero with the name. <clears throat> so they would also create um, Comic Pierce, which was a Flash Gordon Buck Rogers clone but then Mercury was something new. Uh, it was a tale of a god walking the earth, interacting with mere mortals. It was a theme Kirby liked 
enough to return to again and again and again after Mercury. Mercury, he wanted an entire month before he used it again. Um, Marvel was strapped for Darren Comics. Next came uh, the Vision, which appeared in Marvel Mystery Comics. The Vision was an unearthly being who traveled through dimensions, um, usually materializing with billows of smoke. A comic historian would later destroy it. So is it not the Vision we know today, or is it the same Vision? No, no. The, this Vision more is in the style of uh, the Silver Surfer just going world to world. Okay. <laughs> A uh, uh, comic book historian later described the character as never smiled, no eyeballs. He was a staunch pessimist. It would uh, end each caper with a gloomy soliloquy, such as the world sees with terror and evil. It is time for me to hurry to where I am most needed. All in all, it wasn't an easy character to warm up to at this time because there is a mounting fear that the United States is heading for war. To be fair, I'd be a pretty pissy person too if I didn't have any eyeballs. Right. I think that would piss me the fuck off too. I'd be like, look, go fuck yourselves. I can't see shit. So, they were kind of creating these characters, but um, let's see, where am I? Uh, Simon, World War II is looming. Simon recalled, we were always looking for a great villain, and it's becoming hard to think of a better villain than Adolf Hitler. The most natural thing in the world was the creation of a hero who could uh, and would, on his first cover, punch the fear in the face. Let's that is, get it. That is a very famous cover. Even this past 4th of July, I saw it on my Facebook feed. Captain if America. If you vaguely like comic books, you've seen that cover. Yep. If you know anybody on social media, you have to have seen that cover. So, and here we're going to discover another reoccurring theme. Uh, artists not being forthcoming with how they created characters. Simon would later say he had the initial notion and he worked out the format before he brought Kirby in, but Kirby would later recall contributing from the outside uh, from the very beginning. But hmm. either way, Kirby and Simon were soon marching in the Goodman's office with sketches and pictures that extolled the glories of Patriot patriotism kids on the street he told the publisher were already playing soldiers firing pretend weapons at a pretend hitler why not put that into a comic book it's <clears throat> a good point right why not just take the gamble of starting captain america and his own title with things being so volatile in the news it had to go to press in a hurry Simon called in a whole uh, scale of a uh, whole squad of artists, but Kirby, with his usual "I can do anything" attitude, insisted he could pencil the whole book in the allotted time. Simon was skeptical, 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 but he allowed Kirby to go ahead. 
but somehow. Now, now, what was Simon? He he was the anchor, kind of, and the editor. No, I mean, I mean, how are his feelings about Jack Kirby being able to do it? Oh, he's impressed, but he didn't think Kirby could do it. He wanted to bring in a whole squad of writers, but Kirby's like, no, dude, I got this. I was just trying to get you to stay skeptical. But um, he would later oh. remark <laughs> he later remarked the other guys would have been fine, but there is only one Jack Kirby, and the result was one of the most exciting visual experiences to date. So he he did the whole book. Yeah, he penciled he met the, the deadline, did that whole book. Is it while he was working the other fabric job? No, he he was working other comics at uh at the time timely. This was his only job. Now did he write and draw the book? Uh I think Joe wrote it, but he penciled everything. Oh, that's impressive. So yeah, it was a visually stunning book, and it hit the uh, newsstands on December 20th, 1940. <clears throat> Just nine days later, a fireside chat with President Roosevelt. And if you don't know what fireside chats are, it's something FDR used to do to talk to the American public. I think it was every week he would get on the radio and say, hey, this is what's going on this week. Isn't that nice? And he told the U.S. that war was imminent and America must be the greatest symbol of democracy. Not everyone loved the flag-draped hero, though. This is going to be surprising to you. There were threatening phone calls and anti-Semitic hate mail. The threats were reported to the police and everyone was puzzled. Unemployment officers were so readily dis or police officers were so readily dispatched to patrol Goodman's quarters a few days later. Simon was startled when the reception was announced that New York Mayor Farola LaGuardia was on the phone asking to speak the, to the editor of Captain America. <clears throat> it was no doubt Simon explained, he said. Uh, the mayor said he loved the book. You boys are doing a great job, and it's the city of New York will make certain that no harm comes to you. Another time, Jack Kirby took a phone call, and the voice on the other said, said there are three of us down here in the lobby. We want to see the guy who does the disgusting comic book and show uh, what real Nazis would do to his Captain America. See, that, that doesn't surprise me at all, Dan. <laughs> I didn't think there was Nazi Nazis sympathizers. I didn't think there's Nazi sympathizers in the United States at that time. Oh, come on. You think people are just as dumb right now? There was always people this dumb. They just didn't talk about it online. That's I, and I just picture them in my head downstairs, like, hitting their fists and their palm being like, yeah. Bring that little Jew down here. We'll show him what's what. Yeah. So Jack Kirby rolled up his sleeves <laughs> and headed downstairs. Oh, really? Yeah. However, tiny, tiny, tough nuts. Yeah. However, they were gone by the time he arrived. 
Years later, he told an interviewer, I once got a letter from the Nazi who told me to pick out my lamppost I won on Times Square because when Hitler arrived, they were going to hang me from it. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's such... You know what? I'll give Nazis credit. They are some, they are some of the best at saying some of the most horrific shit. Oh, yeah. Superhero comics were never the same. They were way out in front of making comic books different from comic strips. They had a bigger canvas, and they used it designing the page by instead of by the panel. They forged a new style for a new medium. Before them, almost every other drawing uh, had been replicated, at least five syndicated strips artists. Uh, Howard Foster, Alex Raymond, Roy Crane, Milton Caniff, and Chester Gould. <laughs> Even Joe and Jack mimic, mimicked all five of them at times, but now they were Joe you Simon. Think those five were like snooty. Well, they were. Like they, they were wearing smoking jackets together and smoking cigars, and like lesser artists came up there, like <laughs> we don't have time for you. <laughs> well, they were like their original newspaper strip comic artist. Look here, kid. If you're gonna make it in the comic book industry, you gotta work hard, kid. Where's your confidence, kid? You're not answering any questions, kid. I can see it. I can see it now. <laughs> so they mimicked all five of these guys, but now they were Simon and Kirby, and others would want to be them as well. They, um, it was at this time that Jack met a woman named Rosalind Goldstein, or Roz, as everyone called her. She lived in a second-story duplex apartment, the same one that the Kurtzbergs lived in. Oh. One day, she saw Jack playing stickball out in the street, and there was an instant mutual notice. In her own words, Roz like a, like a man. Right, playing stickball like a fucking man, goddammit. <laughs> Roz describes uh, the first meeting. Almost the first thing he said was, would you like to see my etchings? I didn't know who uh, the world etchings meant, so he explained they Ooh. are my drawings. He wanted to take me into his bedroom, and I thought, why not? His parents are in the next room. My parents aren't in the next room. What could happen? So he takes me to his So he takes me to his bedroom and can you believe it? He really did show me drawings. He showed me all of these drawings, including pages he was drawing out of Captain America. He showed me the first comic books I had ever seen. But I was more interested in Jack and I started wondering what he looked like in swim trucks. He was quite a catch. Oh, my, my. I know. Scandalous. I wondered what he looked like in swim trunks. You hussy. <laughs> Jack recalled I would go up and have dinner with her parents, or she would come down and have dinner with mine, and then we would go to a movie together. On May 23rd, 1942, Rosalind Goldstein became Mrs. Jack Kurtzberg. Later, when her husband legally changed his name, she became Mrs. Jack Kirby. They were renting a place in Manhattan Beach for $53 a month. 
That was a must be nice. <laughs> right. Must be nice. I don't want to hear about rent problems. Oh, also, if you're wondering about Jack's pay, I forgot I put this in there. He was making $75 a week. Oh, so he had the rent covered every week. Yep. Plus, he was living it up in Manhattan. Big man in the city. You better hope that apartment's rent control. So she would become more than a spouse. She was his partner in every aspect of his life, work included. She consulted with him on every aspect of his career and was a stabilizing voice of reason when everything happened. All too often, Jack's life, that career gave him a cause for anger. And it's also right around this time that Joe Simon and Jack Kirby got a young 18-year-old assistant. He was determined to make a fortune as a famous writer of other things other than comics. But since he was assisting Simon and Kirby, and that was the job he could get at the time, he would do comics for a while. Uh, Let me guess a little fella. Wanting, wanting to save his real name for his real career, he never signed his work with it. So he came up with a pseudonym and signed all of his work with the name Stan Lee. Oh, boy. Stan. Young hot rod, 18 years old. Stan. Fire. Stan would later recall Jack and Joe were virtually the whole staff. Jack would sit at a table behind a big cigar. <clears throat> and he would uh, follow that up with another big cigar and he would ask Jack are you comfortable do you want some more ink is your brush okay is your pencil all right and then Joe would go out and yell at me for a while and that was the way we spent our days I was a gopher (laughs) I I would go for coffee um, and they also let me write some stuff um Stan's debut was a text story and in Captain America number three. And before long they let him write uh comic books. Joe and Jack took a liking to the young man, and it's becoming more and more obvious that Joe and Jack were be being swindled and profits by uh Martin Goodman. They didn't, they didn't receive the bonuses that they were promised for Captain America. Um, and they discovered that Goodman was claiming, claiming almost every expenditure in his office as an expense to be charged against the budget of Captain America. Oh, wow. What a piece of shit. Yep. So... <sighs> Uh, so this was called Hollywood Accounting. Another time and place, Martin was uh, making a fortune and bragging about it. And at the same time, he was claiming his best-selling book was only making a timing profit. Uh, Jack recalled, it seemed like a good deal to get out of and a good time to do so. Uh, Simon phoned Jack Leibowitz, who ran DC Comics, the industry leader and was delighted that um, and he was delighted to have Simon and Kirby. Simon and Kirby were welcomed to DC Comics, but not by everyone. 
They uh, were running their own studio, hiring artists, sometimes write, writers producing stories for the company as outside suppliers. However, some of the suppliers objected, objected this. The most vocal was editor Ward Weisinger, who didn't like uh, that his company were allowing people to do this. They weren't going step by step under his editorial purview. He insisted on buying scabs from his writers and giving them to Joe and Jack to draw. Jack and Joe insisted on making paper airplanes out of them. Huh, that's great. Kirby would later state that they tried for a while to control us, but we knew how to do comics. Finally, they let us do whatever we wanted. They were thrilled with everything they did, and the readers were thrilled. Simon and Kirby produced uh for dc two originals one revamp and one warm revamp that was so different it was virtually uh an original they one was manhunter a strip that had been featured um the old version was a plainclothes detective in the manner of radios mr king DC was going to drop it all together, but Joe and Jack thought the name was too good to waste, so they did a full teardown, making him into a big game hunter who donned a mask and switched to hunting another kind of animal, the human criminal. Oh, that sounds a little bit more interesting. The revamp was the Sandman. Um, the other one was, he kind of started as a Green Hornet imitation um blah 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 sorry uh it's just sometimes i jumble everything together you're good you're good that's what makes it unique so and then um jack kind of we, we call that we, we call that the uh the spice of it man it's just a little danny sauce <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> oh man. So throughout most of 42 and into 43, the conflict was front and center. Um <clears throat> World War Two. Everywhere Joe and Jack had three obligations and needed uh to balance them to their country, which needed young men to serve their loved ones who need more income to live on. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, Jack got, received a draft notice. Oh, shit. But um, because he I'll had his family, had his family to support, he secured a deferment. Um, so he began to work faster and faster and faster so he could get enough work backlog. So he s said, I quote, uh, so that I could go into the army, kill Hitler, and get back before the readers missed us. So that's great. That's a great comment. But you're telling me they said, come join the army. And he goes, <laughs> I'm far too poor to join the army. <laughs> Basically, yes. That's hilarious. I'm, trust me, I'm much too poor to join the Army. Uh, so in early 1943, Simon enlisted in the Coast Guard, 
Uh, he spent most of his service time at their air combat uh, center in Washington, D.C., doing what he did best. Where, where they had the ski lodge, right? <laughs> right. Uh, where they he, had the ski lodge and fucking hot chocolate. He assembled comic books uh, for the Coast Guard. But this time it was for the military. He kept on drawing other artists um, with other artists. Uh, on Monday, June 21st, Jack reported for duty, was almost, was shipped off to Camp Stewart near Atlanta, Georgia. And Uncle Sam made a laughable attempt to jerk Kirby, uh, a man who can barely drive without running off the road into an auto mechanic. Uh, the motor pool and Kirby were not made for each other, and he was soon reclassified as a rifleman. On August 17th, 1944, he was shipped off to Europe. He was assigned to the infamous Company F of the 11th Infantry underneath the command of General George S. Patton. Oh, yep. I didn't know that. I didn't know a lot about his military history because the only one you ever heard about is Stan Lee, who joined the Army to draw and write. Be an artist, yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> on August I'm 20... I'm an artist. On, Aug <laughs> on August 23rd, uh, Kirby's outfit landed on Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. To help oh no, him. what's he gonna change into? Huh? Oh no, what's he gonna change into? <laughs> uh, he just uh they landed <laughs> on Omaha Beach um to handle the operations that remained following D-Day some two months earlier. In October, uh Company F joined the battle for Bastogne and engaged in weeks and weeks and weeks of heavy heavy combat with a substantial number of casualties. Kirby would fight in foxholes. He would be ambushed. Um, there's, a, there's a very great documentary on, uh, on Amazon Prime called J Kirby at War. Uh, there's, there's been many accounts of Jack shooting Nazis. And even one case, he got a knife kill on a Nazi. Oh, good for him. That's right. Well, well, everybody's beloved Stan Lee was sitting at a desk with a typewriter. Jack Kirby killed a fucking Nazi with a knife. Yeah, good for him. He deserves to get some more credit for that. Um, so a lot of this influenced a lot of his writing and his drawing. Like, you'll see... Um, he was able to talk to Nazi prisoners. And a lot of people speculate that these experiences, um, by talking to people that are evil in a sense, but are almost like you and me, thinking they're doing the right thing, fighting the right right. From this, we get yeah. the mind, mindset of Dr. Doom. Um, oh, that's great. Uh, and Galactus and stuff like that, these evil supervillains that weren't 
I'm not going to say weren't evil. They were still bad, but they didn't believe it. They thought they were doing right. They weren't just doing things to cause harm. They were doing things because they thought that was right. And before anybody takes my words out of context, I do not agree with what the Nazis stand for, and I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's, that's a hot take. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Dan is anti-Nazi. <laughs> I guess I'll go on record too. I am staunchly anti-Nazi. Um, That's great. So, welcome to twenty twenty. So he he would pull a lot of his um, future comics writing from this, um, and he would have severe PTSD. Um, it affected him for his entire life, <laughs> but that also that allowed him to create better, more personable comics. That's what's up. So, the average time uh, in combat that a soldier saw, an American soldier saw during World War II was 10 days. I didn't know that either. That's an interesting fact. On average. I thought it like, way more than that. No, well, think about the high... Uh, kill rate, the high wounded rate. Um, I've read books where in a single battle, a company ha was retrofitted with uh, 205% uh, new recruits. That's how many people they lost over the course of one battle. I don't know what those words mean, Dan. Okay. Uh, it's like Vietnam. I think the average days in combat that a soldier usually saw was 175. Woo! But see, you look at the KIA rate during World War II and the KIA rate during Vietnam, those guys weren't seeing overall more combat and not to take anything away from a Vietnam veteran, but it wasn't as furious and destructive as what we were seeing in World War II. So anyway, back to my okay, point. I get what you're saying. Jack served in combat from October till January. Oh, holy shit. Yep. So the average was 10 days. He did what, four months? Yes. Holy he was, shit. He was in France since August too, but he wasn't really in heavy combat. Okay. So... Wow, he's a tough one. He was removed from the front lines and sent to a hospital in France because he got severe frostbite. That is not what I was expecting to hear yet again. Uh, in January 1945, uh, Kirby was reassigned to Camp Butner in North Carolina. Six months later, he was mustered out of with the rank of private first class supporting a combat infantry badge along with the Euro European African Middle Eastern theater ribbon with a bronze battle star. He spent in total two years in uniform during which he somehow managed to amass 20 years worth of war memories for the rest of his life. Uh, these would be used in his oh, stories, wow. but the experience was more than uh, more than just a source of material and anecdotes. It it changed him forever. <clears throat> and yeah, not, combat will do uh, I am not crying over here. Uh, it changed him forever. 
and not only uh, did it affect him by day, but also in his sleep at night, even half a century later, he would still revisit the big one in his dreams, uh, often waking up alongside his wife in an icy sweat. Oh Poor man, fella. yeah. Um, but we got we got a lot of great stories out of it. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so yeah, uh, like I said, if you want to learn more about his experiences, Kirby at War is a great documentary. So I'm, I got some stuff written here, but it just kind of goes back and forth over from the 40s to the 50s. Um, so we're going to kind of... Well, go ahead. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit. Uh, Jack and Joe would relink and they would work together. Um, but they, they switched from making superheroes to now people didn't really want that so um jack kirby and joe simon they would uh they would create they would create romance comics oh that's a weird shift <clears throat> and westerns and war comics and they would just constantly bounce around um because in the 40s uh, they didn't want to go back to timely comics because of the way they had left. Uh, DC wasn't, um, they had changed while they were gone. They were no, letter, no longer letting Jack and Joe do what they want. Um, there's a couple instances where, where Jack got screwed out of money. And they're both family men at this time. Uh, Jack would have uh, a couple of kids, and then so would Joe. So they had to support their own families. Joe would go back to uh, the original comic book company, uh, Funny Inc. Okay. But Jack would slug it out in the trenches. In the 50s, uh, comic books almost completely disappeared. Do you know anything about the, the comic comic book code authority or anything like that yeah they were the ones who, who like started censoring the books like what they could put in what they couldn't put in stuff like that right everybody real absurd in the beginning like for a while like you couldn't even show werewolves and, like crazy shit like that right so there was this big court ruling or court hearing to determine whether or not uh, comic books contributed to juvenile delinquency and this is when people go oh millennials are getting offended this is why it upsets me your grandparents were literally so upset by comics that they tried to destroy them fucking comic books okay people yeah. are always offended it's just now everybody has a voice yeah fuck your grandparents well, it's the same thing with the parental advisory labels put on music in the late 80s by Tipper Gore. Yeah, fuck Tipper Gore, too. Oh, yeah. So... Fuck, even Al Gore didn't want to fuck Tipper Gore anymore. So, in a response to public outcries 
uh, raised in popular magazines. Comics were put on trial by the United States government uh, to investigate the juvenile dis uh, delinquency. So they were. Yeah, that's what we need is more government oversight. Right. So basically, um, the comic books decided to uh, put a code on their book, like their own parental advisory label. Uh, the code was voluntary. There is no law requiring its use, although some advertisers and retailers look to it for reassurance. Uh, some publishers, including Dell, Western Classics, Illustrated, and Treasure Chest never used it. Uh, commonly called the Comics Code lasted until the early 21st century. See, like, it wasn't a law or anything, but the peer pressure and, and pressure from the outside sources, the advertisers, the marketers, it, it forced you to, if you want to be successful, you have to abide by it, put a stamp on it. The comics that you just mentioned that didn't use it, I've never heard of those comics, and I'm sure most people haven't, and it's for a fucking reason. By the mid-1950s, almost 75% of the comic book industry was forced out of business. Boom. The comic book code was the only way out, and its long and stringent set of guidelines prohibited everything from excessive levels of violence to self-destructive use of tobacco. It's, I mean, they're not wrong. It's it's not like uh, you know Usain Bolt goes jogging and then smokes a pack of Newports to feel better, right? You know, it's just absurd that they feel like that has to be. But these kids' parents are smoking cigarettes. They're fucking having congressional hearings right now smoking cigarettes. So we're gonna jump back in to the late 50s uh kirby was doing westerns war books uh romance comics and monster comics so uh, we're towards the end of the story jack finally calls stanley and asks for work because he didn't want to go back to goodman after everything and oh, okay. so let's see where was i <laughs> like yeah. he, he went all over the place like he even went to archie comics to see if they had work for him and right so and unfortunately joe simon and jack kirby kind of go their own separate ways but now uh, Jack's back at Marvel or Timely or whatever you want to call it, Atlas. Martin Goodman's company, uh, they went by a dozen different names. Some sort of tax dodge, Kirby said, but the comic book line was mainly referred to as Atlas Comics. 
his other more profitable decisions divisions put out puzzle books magazine featuring hard-boiled fiction for males and or racy cartoons is that porn, porn hard-boiled fiction for males yes it is they put out some real hard-boiled fiction for us males this week you're going to want to look at the periodicals oh man Sun felt the only reason why he kept the comics going was so that uh, Stanley uh, would have a job. The job wasn't much. Working with almost no staff or budget, Stan assembled approximately 10 comics a month. One or two were Westerns. Two or three were teen comics. Millie the model, to name one. One was usually... One was usually a love comic, and the rest were an odd kind of science fiction monster comic. No superhero comics. That appealed. Love, love is the real superhero, brother. <laughs> oh well, apparently that's my arch nemesis. Uh, yours too. Kirby drew for all but the teen comics, usually handling at least a cover. Um, the Stanley wrote most of the scripts, and what he couldn't write, he farmed out to his brother Larry Lieber. Uh, Larry's script and many of the lead monster stories drawn by Kirby stories like Goom, Son of Goom, and Feng Fang Foom. Mm. Oh, Feng Fang Foom is a favorite of mine. He, it was about a dragon dressed for some reason in a diaper. Yeah, man, can't be shitting and flying everywhere. <laughs> like for real you think I'm, I'm just going to shit over it could be anywhere, it could be somebody's house I'm flying over I don't know so it was also speculated that a lot of his illustration on these comics uh, came from his war experiences what he saw inside his head that makes Fing Fang Foom a lot more different yeah so, like, who the fuck was the dragon over there, brother? <laughs> oh. You know, like, seriously, where the fuck? Maybe that's how he saw himself. Yeah, that's true. Maybe after he stabbed, dude, he was like, I'm a fucking dragon. I'm out here stabbing these bitches. <laughs> What's Stan Lee doing? Nothing. Stan Lee's like, I'm writing poetry. Fuck it. Sometimes the plots came from Stan, sometimes from Jack. When Stan and Jack did a story together, they had a new means of collaboration. It was born of necessity. Stan was overburdened with work, and to make use of Jack's great skill with storylines, Jack, uh, Stan explained, I'd be writing the script for Ditko to draw. Jack would come in to drop off a job he finished, and he would want another script to work on. I'd tell him, I can't get you one now. I have to finish Ditko's. But so that Jack wouldn't leave empty-handed, we'd talk out a plot, and I'd send him off to draw it. That way he would have work, and he handed the pages, and I wrote the dialogue. Sometimes Stan would type up a written plot outline for the artist, sometimes not. Later, some of the artists, including Kirby and Ditko, would insist that Stan had contributed very little, sometimes nothing, to the plot. Oh, I won't stand for this. It, it, it's all. Everything is who did what, who did this. Um, 
but I mean, Stan put himself in a position to be mem- memorized by everybody. No one, no one outside of the comic book world knows who Jack Kirby is. And again, Stan that, Lee is a beautiful and majestic man. He's also greedy and money hungry. But who isn't? We were we were blessed by God to have His presence on Earth for as long as we did. If you didn't have Jack fucking Kirby, you wouldn't have Stanley, and you wouldn't have Marvel Comics. You shut the fuck up. Stanley is a gift from God, and I, you know what? I, I I'm getting ready to turn heel on Jack Kirby here. <laughs> but at the time, everyone was happy just to have work, and. This process would later be called the Marvel Method. It produced some great comics. Lee's dialogue was witty and filled with character. Place it over exciting visual storytelling by Kirby and Dicko, and you had something special. This was first evident on a comic called The Rawhide Kid. It was a long-running comic that Lee and Kirby revamped in 1960. And then they did the same with Two Gun Kid and whipped up a new strip about a sorcerer named Dr. Droom for Amazing Adventures. Huh. Sounds like we'll get some inspiration from that fella. So, uh, Martin Goodman, the owner of this publication company, uh, he, he was always had one foot out the door on comics, like Jack told of uh, walking into the office one day around 1961 and found Stan weeping. The comic line had been discontinued. They were taking out the office furniture. Kirby recalled on more than one occasion. I told them to stop. I told Martin we could turn the company around if we just hang in there. There's no doubt Jack honestly remembered it that way. Other sources suggest his memory was overstating the desperation, but what better way to improve a good story, right? Right on. If Kirby was exaggerating, it was only by a little. Uh, Goodman had already come very close to shutting down his comic book division back in May 1957. But... Goodman kept at it and had it had everything to do with the comeback of DC Comics. Even as Stan was allegedly weeping over a shutdown, DC was enjoying modest success with some superhero revivals. One in particular was the Justice League of America. This okay. was this was all Goodman had to hear. Um, so basically. Uh, he decided to postpone the return of Toon Gun Kid and instead directed Lee to come up with a superhero team book. Can you guess what team that is? This is the Fantastic Four? Yes, sir. Or the is. X-Men. Okay, it's Fantastic Four. Fan, uh, X-Men wouldn't come up until the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. So, uh, Stanley called in Jack Kirby, and between the two of them, the first issue a Fantastic Four came to be. It wasn't polished or even all that coherent, but someone in there, there was a sense of beginning. Um, 
the origin story that Stan and Jack made uh, detailed the story of four adventurers, Professor Reed Richards, Sue Storm, her younger brother, Johnny Storm, and test pilot, Ben Grimm. They launched, were launched into space. The <laughs> uh, they underwent incredible transformations when their craft was bombarded by cosmic rays. Rays and all form of radiation in those days of atom bomb testings and scares would prove to be an all-purpose, one-size-fits-all for origin device for any comic book. Returning to Earth, the four discovered they had new abilities. Richard could stretch. This uh, afforded the scientists a physical power in striking contrast to his intellectual personality. He called himself Mr. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> similar, his fiance, Sue Storm, received the power to disappear. She would become known as the Invisible Girl. Her brother, Johnny Storm, would burst into flames and fly and hurl fireballs, perhaps inspired by how DC was updating its defunct superheroes of the 40s, Lee and Kirby had resurrected and remodeled the Human Torch. That's a name only, though, correct? Right, because the original like, human, everything about the original was different. Yeah, the original Human Torch was an android. Uh, but hands down, the scene stealer of the group was Ben Grimm, cursed by radiation to become a misshapen being with reptilian epidermis and awesome strength. The thing, <clears throat> the character had his lineage in the monster comics that Jack was still drawing at the time. But Jack saw another point of origin himself. Now you said he was originally reptilian skinned. That's what it looked like, yeah. Huh. Do you know when he changed to uh to rock? I think it was always rock, it's just how he was drawn. Oh, okay, the way it looked. So Kirby would later say about the thing. Uh, if you'll notice the way the thing talks and acts, you'll find that the thing is really Jack Kirby. He has my manners. He has my manner of speech. And he thinks the way I do. He's excitable. And you'll find that he's very, very active among people. And he can muscle his way through a crowd. I find that I'm that sort of person. <sighs> Just imagine 5'4", 150-pound Jack Kirby walking around saying, it's clobbering time, damn it. I wonder if he said that to Roz. Those, yeah, that's funny. Those Nazis called him. They said, we're down here. We're going to kick your ass. He said, it's clobbering time. They got the hell out of there. <laughs> um, there would be later disagreement over the sequence of events that brought forth the new heroes. Uh, we all know the story that Stan Lee tells, um, that he went home ready to quit, and his wife said, why don't you do a comic the way you want to do it? And he created the Fantastic Four um, Boom. that he typed up the plot line, selected Jack to draw it, handled him the basics. Kirby would say that wasn't how they ever worked. 
that even on short and important romance stories, there'd be a plot conference, and then he'd be sent off to pencil pages as he saw fit, with or without a tight plot. He'd say he came with the, with the carrots, characters and would even point how they were similar to uh, characters that he drew in the 50s called Challengers of the Unknown. I feel like as an artist, though, you always build on your previous work. Right. So again, this is every famous comic book character that Jack has written so far. There has been arguments still over who created what. Mm, boy. Mm, boy. Um, what are you doing, Jack? <laughs> so, I I mean, I don't know. Uh I mean, we'll see. Jack has a lot of creative, creative ability. Uh, he says that him and Stan would sit down for everything. Um, I, I would find it weird that that would change and Stan Lee would just go home and decided to write the Fantastic Four. But I don't know. Honestly, I could argue with you all day. But the fact of the matter is, is that these two men, great comic books that shaped the modern era, shaped, you know, the comic book industry as we know today, uh, you know, influenced movies, influenced people. <laughs> I could take a stand with you all day and say without Jack Kirby, there would be no Marvel. And you could say without uh, Stan Lee, there would be no Marvel. Both, the fact of the matter is, is both guys are important. It's just that Jack Kirby is better. Oh man, yeah, I was not liking this. <laughs> oh, so none Jack of this Kirby wasn't good enough to get his goddamn self paid. <laughs> Jack none Kirby of... wasn't good enough to get his face out there. People <laughs> know Jack Kirby that are in a niche crowd. Everybody knows Stanley. Everybody adores Stanley. Everybody fucking what loves I lo Stanley. What I Jack love Kirby about this is you forget I can mute your microphone. Hey man. They always want to silence the truth. Me and Alex Jones. <laughs> We're used to it. You're turning into freaking frogs game. If you want to know the truth about Stan Lee, go to InfoWars.com. There's a whole documentary about Stan Lee on there. <laughs> None of this mattered, though, when the first issues reached newsstands on August 8th, 1961. Creatively, it triggered a revolution in comic book storytelling, particularly in the areas of heroic fantasy. Financially, it became the climb of Marvel, as the company would come to be known from a tiny publisher to a massive multimedia corporation and industry leader. More so than any release since Action Comics number one, Fantastic Four number one, changed the rules of the game. The book was revolutionary in the ways that the Fantastic Four characters had uncommon death and personality. <clears throat> they were so, imperfect heroes. Right. Well, we're also... Yeah, unlike if he could hit Superman. Right. We're now seeing more in-death characters. And in my opinion, you still see it nowadays in comic books. Um, it was the same with the next comic day launch, even though 
its success wasn't immediately evident. Again, both Lee and Kirby would have claimed to come up with the idea for the Incredible Hulk. Both cited Jekyll and Hyde as an inspiration, as well as Frankenstein books and movies. The Hulk was a bridge between the monster comics Marvel had been producing and the superhero books that were about to displace them. Though the initial the initial sales were pretty disappointing, um, Goodman would cancel the book after six issues, but the readers wouldn't let this one go. Goodman was warming up to the notion that superheroes might be his best wager. He had five ongoing monster science fiction anthology titles, Journey into Mystery, Amazing Adult Fantasy, Tales to Astonish, Strange Tales, and Tales of, of Suspense. Whole bunch of tales. Well, Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales, you know, would also create uh, some pretty good characters, too. Like oh, yeah. The Astonishing Ant-Man, uh, Doctor Strange. They just weren't creative with names as far as publications. Uh, yeah, he gave the nod to adding superhero strips to the front of each, a smart move. So the Mighty Thor debuted into Journey into a Mystery. Uh, <clears throat> what, what the fuck? Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, did the initial script, but the concept and plot Stan said came from him. Jack would later point to all the stories he had done about gods, a Thor, chief among them, walking the earth, and, and insisted the series originated with him. Whoever idea it was, it was a good idea. Um, it was a perfect yeah, way yeah. To, to bring forth an endless stream of intriguing, powerful characters without pausing for contrived origin. Once you bought the Lee Kirby spin on Norse Legends, you were in. Their version of the God of Thunder had all the attributes of Captain Marvel, right down to the transformation in a bolt of lightning. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot about that. Yep. Um, what was his name? Arthur? I believe it was. Character name was Arthur something? Yes. Uh, and originally uh, Odin sent him there as a punishment to learn to uh, control his powers better or be more worthy or some shit like that. <laughs> right. Let's see. Blah, blah, blah. So they're starting to get on a roll. Uh, the same month Thor debuted, a superhero was added to the book that had been known as Amazing Adult Fantasy. He was an unusual creation who convoluted a birthing process, would cause considerable friction between Stanley and Kirby. Both would forever claim to come up with the idea what <laughs> that would prove to be Marvel's most successful character ever, the Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. Years yeah. Um, go ahead. Stan, Stan would later recall that in a search for new characters, he drifted back to an old plump hero. I always loved the spider. I always loved the name Hawkman, but of course DC had a character by that name. But thinking about Hawkman led me to Spider-Man, and the minute I said it out loud, I knew we had to do it. Jack, however, maintains that he suggests the idea that Spider-Man 
was an idea he once developed with Joe Simon and he even had an old title logo designed by Simon to prove it. Regardless, it was either Lee or Kirby who suggested Spider-Man and Kirby began on the first tale of such a hero similar and uh, uh similar blah 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 worded uh, similar in some ways to a character who would become famous under the name but different in many other ways uh this one was like billy batson uh and captain marvel or shazam a young orphan who transformed into a muscular adult in this case, via a magic ring, Jack was a few pages into it when the decision was made to abandon his work and start fresh with Steve. Um, Lee would, would later say this is because he didn't want Spider-Man to be a conventional superhero. Uh, Kirby was drawing him strong and muscular, but that's, that's not how... Um, that's not how Lee, the creator, saw it. Oh, yeah. The creator. Okay. Um. <laughs> I ruffled your feathers there. <laughs> I thought we were past <laughs> this, Johnny. <laughs> Besides, um, Jack was really busy at this time. Uh, Jack was drawing something more like the fly. He only drew his Spider-Man for a few panels on discarded pages. They could have easily been redrawn. Moreover, neither account explains why the orphan became older, why the magic ring and transformation were dropped, why the character changed, or why Dicko was told to design a completely new costume. Lee would later say Jack could never draw uh, Spider-Man the way I wanted to, him to look. Oh, that sounds good to me. Uh, what would explain it? explain it all as if for someone at Goodman's was worried that Kirby was doing was coming out too much like the fly. Ditko, one of his few public statements on Spider-Man, later wrote that he recognized the sim similarities and informed Stan. Um, Lee and Ditko did the first Spider-Man story. Uh, Goodman hated it and canceled the comic before receiving any sales figures. Um, subsequent, subsequent reports bolstered by reader mail uh, and Stan's enthusiasm for the property would prompt him to launch his Spider-Man comic the following year, the same month, in fact, that he declared the Incredible Month Hulk a flop and canceled that book. Talk about a guy who was... In winning decisions. Yeah, talk about a guy who was slow to realize when he had a hit on his hand. It makes sense that Stan would be enthusiastic about a character that he created. Spider-Man would quickly become Marvel's biggest success. What uh, Kirby contributed and would be would be arguable and argued over and over, but Jack felt he contributed at least something for which he received neither pay nor acknowledgement. In the meantime, Tales to Astonish got a superhero feature in 1962, Ant-Man, a shrinking superhero who communicate with insects. 
Kirby drew the first stories asking all the time if they could be assigned to anyone else, though his medal never allowed him to concede. He would not he could not make an ideal work. He came perilously close with Ant-Man, a character he found too ineffectual. He found him too ineffectual? A superhero should stand for strength, he later remarked. No one fantasizes about being the size of an ant. Uh, people would later suggest that that was because he wasn't tall and a Marvel hero with whom he was most uh, closely identified had to be an Ant-Man. In truth, it was probably the character he cared about the least. Oh, wow. That's funny. That's ironic. Solo uh, Adventures of the Human Torch were added to Strange Tales in 62, drawn by Kirby for some time. And later in 1963, Tales of Suspense received its first superhero feature, uh, Iron Man, written by uh, Larry Lieber and drawn initially by Don Heck. However, Lieber was working from a plot Stan had given him, and Heck was drawing from a cover and concept sketches by Kirby. Stan wasn't happy with the first story, so he immediately turned the art chores over to Kirby. Jack was the answer to all problems. Bravo, right on. You need somebody like that in an organization. Right. So uh, Stan had been telling Goodman uh, that he and Kirby had found a new way to approach comics, a new way of making them exciting. The publisher wondered if this new approach would work for a war comic. And Stan said it would work for anything. That is how Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos came about. Oh. From 63 to 64, Jack drew eight of the first 13 issues, tapping into his uh, World War II memories and fashioning the lead character, the, the cigar-chomping Sergeant Nick Fury, on himself. Asked hmm. about it in an interview, he would explain, is Nick Fury is how I wish others saw me. Ben Grimm is probably closer huh. to the way they do see me. What? Yeah. They, they see him like a big rock monster? Big, short, oh, fat cool. rock monster. I guess. That's a hell of a way to put it. They probably see him more like the penguin than anything, if we're being honest. <laughs> Goodman still wanted a book like DC's Justice League of America, so Stan and Jack gave him the Avengers. Originally, they were the Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, the Wasp, and Ant-Man, soon to be Giant-Man, and as various sizes forming a team of uh, disparate, often uh, bickering heroes, as with Sergeant Fury and other strips, Jack drew, drew the early issues before handing them off to another artist. Most memorable early issue of the Avengers resurrected Captain America and placed him into the pantheon of Marvel superheroes. The star-spangled defender had endured the loss of Simon and Kirby back in the early 40s, lasting until um, a trend for action heroes. Uh, brief revival attempt in the 50s had flounder. It just wasn't the time for superheroes to return. Now that it was, back he came. 
another uh, another resurrected Golden Age character was a submariner ventured into Chile Arctic waters and came across a block of ice containing the long frozen form of the real Captain America. Oh, yep, that's dope. Yeah. So the submariner. See, they have it hyphenated here. The Submariner Mariner ripped the frozen crit free from the iceberg. And it was set adrift towards warmer waters. The Avengers uh, found it uh, just as he was dying out. The science was ridiculous. Stan and Lee would later blame each other for it, but the character's impact was undeniable. Captain America was back and all his patriotic glory and he was drawn by Jack Kirby. All right, all right, Jack. Good stuff. Uh, he would dominate the Avengers comic and soon received his own strip in Tales of the Suspense in 64. Goodman asked for two more titles, a team that might replicate the sales success of Fantastic Four and another acrobatic hero who might, who might sell as well as Spider-Man. Martin was making progress, Kirby remarked. He went to he went from imitating others' successes to imitating his own. That's funny. That's a real that's a real interesting quote too. Yeah. So for the first, uh, Lee and Kirby came up with the X-Men in nineteen sixty-three. Uh-oh which introduced the con concepts of mutants into the Marvel Universe, eventually to a great advantage. It was another franchise, a simple premise through which dozens of new characters could be introduced and hit the ground running. Mutation. The two central themes of Marvel superheroism converged once again. Having great powers could create great problems, and it was occasionally hard to tell the superheroes from the villains. Some mutants were bad, some mutants were good, and many weren't certain. Again, the <sighs> again the recollections of the two men diverged as how to the strip came about. Stan claimed the concept originated with Herm. Kirby said he had the idea. By now, that was the norm. Um, so Jack was so Jack started the book by drawing it until he had worked up a good momentum, and then handed it off. X Men would pass through many hands after it left his. Some able, some not so able. The comic was even canceled for a time before others would revive it and add new mutants into the Lee Kirby superstructure. This is one of the greatest assets because they could make so many different storybooks just off of mutants. Even now, they uh, revamped the X-Men nowadays and they have a... A Wolverine run. They're working on a Cyclops run. They're they're doing several other groups from the X Men. Like they spanned at least 
there's at least eight books based on the X-Men franchise right now in publication. And that's just right now. You know, there's been so many before. Um, for the acrobatic hero, uh, who do you think, who do you think uh, created? Can you give me a little, another little clue? More and than acrobatic hero. He lived in New York City. Daredevil. Yep. <laughs> New York City wasn't a good clue either. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I can't Most say. Of them live in New York City. I can't say Hell's Kitchen. You would have got no. That, that would have gone away immediately. Um. So Kirby did the early covers, and he seemed to <laughs> aided with a few plot uh, ideas, including the design of the Billy Club that the hero used to great heroic advantage. Um. But he never did the full principal art. Stanley was on a creative high, energized especially by his collaborations not only with Kirby, but also with Steve Dicko on Spider-Man and a new magician character, my personal favorite, Doctor Strange. The Marvel method um, <coughs> of plot first, then art, then script allowed Stan to produce hundreds of pages of comic books uh, per month filling them with verbiage that was colorful and loaded with personality. It was even at times somewhat sophisticated, at least by comic book standards. Let's, the Marvel method, like this doesn't sound like that groundbreaking of a comic, uh, of an idea, but it was basically getting a plot first, then drawing it, then writing it. What were they doing before? Drawing it, then plotting it? Basically, yeah. That sounds like an ass-backwards way to do it. Here, I'm going to draw some pictures, make me say some cool shit. Um, so, and at this time, something else that ruffled uh, <clears throat> uh, Jack's feathers was uh, the editor-in-chief, Stanley started doing these letter columns uh, and ads with Marvel, you're on a first-name basis with your buddies, Smiling Stan and Jolly Jack. They were there to entertain you, um, but he did get the best out of his people. Uh, he certainly got it out of Kirby and Dicko, encouraging styles and imaginations uh, to run for leadership. Mm. Stan Lee is the leader of men. <laughs> Just shut the hell up. All right. <laughs> Uh, Jack was becoming known as the, the guy other artists were told to emulate. Um, just a couple <laughs> years prior, he left DC for not conforming to the house style. Now everybody wants to be Jack Kirby and they want to write a Jack Kirby style book. When he arrived at DC in the 50s, they told him, we don't want Jack Kirby, we want DC. Looks like the table's determined, my friend. Oh, they sure are. <coughs> Everybody Don, wants to Jack Kirby. Don Heck, who was an artist at Marvel during the time, would remark, Stan wanted Kirby to be Kirby, Dicko to be Dicko, and everyone else to be Kirby. 
Uh, Stan would break in a new artist by having Jack do rough layouts for them, hoping it would be a learning experience. Sometimes Jack would teach more directly. So here's Jack being a leader in the trenches. He's, he himself yeah, spent several evenings in the breakfast room of the Kirby home. Um, uh, the, the author of the book I read. Uh, See, the delegation and recognizing uh, those under you that will lead uh, in your image is, is a great form of leadership. I like it. He knew who to pick. He knew who to instruct. Uh, well, Kirby was the golden cash cow, man. Kirby's output during this period was staggering, not just for the quantity or quality, but the quantity of quality. <clears throat> Marvel's carrying dates from 1962 to 1964 featured 3,130 interior pages of Kirby art plus 285 Kirby color. Roughly the that's equivalent impressive. of a book a week. Oh, that's yeah, that seems impressive. Honestly, to be fair, I, I've never drawn a comic book. I don't know the complexities of it. His value to the company was immense. His compensation was not. <clears throat> Later stories were told of him cornering good men in the hallway and reminding them how he weathered low pay when the company could not afford more. Rates were going up, but not Kirby believed uh, commensurate with profits. He also reminded Goodman of the old deal to pay Simon and Kirby 25% of the profits on comics featuring Captain America and other new characters they created. Jack wasn't even expecting that much on the new books, but he was expecting something. Just what he was promised, we'll never know. Kirby later said it was significant, but it was also not on paper. Almost nothing about Jack's working with relationship with Marvel was on paper, not even not even at the time any uh, any of the rights he had was given up to the material. <laughs> he didn't so he didn't even own his characters. No, Jack didn't like that much, but he didn't see an alternative. So Jack hunkered down and kept working from epic to epic he raced and once he finished drawing a drawing or story it often went completely out of his head. Several times he forgot a character design and it was necessary for the inker to retouch a costume so that it matched the previous issue. Hey, he's got a lot of output going on. Oh yeah. Jack sometimes forgot how the last chapter had ended, which led to the next story not linking up precisely. He worked seven days a week chained to the board in his term in a dark cramped basement cubicle he called the dungeon. There are no windows and then when he became engrossed in the story he usually lost all track of time. His wife would wake up at 7 a.m. realize that Jack, Jack never came to bed and find him in the dungeon finishing his sixth page since the previous morning. Another artist produ producing work that detailed might have struggled to manage three a day. Jesus. Uh, 
Later years, Roz would visibly shudder and recall the very real fear that Jack would literally work himself to death. Even when he had the flu, he would insist on dragging himself to the board for at least a few hours. He would begin to have a problem uh, with one eye, a condition that would become a constant concern. It'd be years before it impacted his drawing, but he didn't know that at the time and it worried him greatly. If he couldn't see, he couldn't, if he couldn't see, he couldn't draw, and if he couldn't draw, he couldn't bring home that paycheck. One day, he met with Stan to discuss an idea that had come up with the super spy feature built around Nick Fury, the sergeant from the war comics. This version would be set in present day and it would differentiate from the older Fury. Stan suggested giving the character an eye patch. Kirby was stunned. He was worried about use the lo loss of, uh, of his eye and the character he used as his alter ego had just lost an eye. Huh. Life imitating art, imitating life, he called it. He, he would start increasingly asking Marvel for uh, some sort of long-term financial security, something with health insurance, maybe a pension. He was constantly told, we'll discuss it, but they never seemed uh, wanting to actually discuss it. That's a shame. He spoke of trying to build Marvel into something. There was a steadfast belief that the financial success would trickle down his way, and it never did. Um, Fantastic Four remained the keystone book in the Marvel line, moved from one-issue stories to multiple-issue epics. As the comic where great new characters were introduced, uh, including the monomaniacal Dr. Doom, the supernormal tribe known as the Inhumans, and the characters many consist, considered to be the first black superhero in comics, the Black Panther. Okay, yeah. Fun fact, uh, Jack was uh, originally going to call him the Cole Panther. The Cole Panther does not have the same state. No, it kind of seems a little racist. I mean, I, I I don't see it that way, but if, you know, if people interpret it that way. Um, and then there was the Silver Surfer, and early '67 feature four featured uh, Fantastic Four featured a storyline um, <clears throat> that many regard as the peak of the Lee Kirby collaboration. The tale of Galactus, an all-powerful being from another galaxy who feasted on planets, leaving them lifeless in his wake. Jack would later claim that it all resulted from a forward plot given verbally from Stan and Jack, have them fight God. But have them fight God. But it's hard to see how Galactus, who consumed life instead of creating it, resembled Either's notion of the Almighty. Um, <clears throat> let's see. 
he had a couple concerns. Um, he postulating a day when man might encounter beatings from another planet and exchange technology. What he wondered if we encounter beings who don't want to exchange colonies or technology, what if they just want to eat us? Yeah. The other concern was in regard to Marvel in the stock market section of the paper. Kirby was reading tales of corporate raiders who acquire a small company, drain it of its assets, and move on, leaving a hollow, inert shell. <clears throat> Goodman was getting set out feelers about a takeover, and that made Jack nervous. Kirby drew almost exclusively in pencil, leaving others to inscribe and embellish his work in ink. At times, others lacked the basic skills, or in some cases, the patience and work ethic to serve the work properly. That was when it was merely great, not Kirby great. It became Kirby great when someone like Joe Sinnott was assigned to ink. And sadly, comics have never had a lot of someones like Joe Sinnott. <coughs> I've never heard of this guy, but I imagine he was a top-notch inker. Yeah. Uh, Senate's first efforts inking Kirby doubly impressed editor Stan Lee. Not only did Stan think the work looked great, but in an unprecedented move, uh, readers sent in fan mail praising the art. For a time, Marvel's Spartan page rates forced Stan to use cheaper inkers. But as soon as the budgets were boosted a buck or two a page, he lassoed Senate and everyone was happy. Though he did not even meet Kirby until years after they'd done their major work. Senate had an oh. uncanny. Yeah, uh, a lot of this time, Jack worked from home. <coughs> okay, down in his little basement dungeon. Yep. Joe was a dedicated worker. Um, on uh, previous work, Senate spent at least two solid hours inking just the gun. Some inkers want to spend two hours on an entire page. There is no one best inker for Kirby. Uh, and certainly others. But if you're in a room of Jack Kirby fans and you announce that Joe Senate was the best, no one will waste much time on an argument. Okay, that's a fair point to make. <laughs> so Stan okay so Stan says about Galactus Jack may have come up with the name Galactus or I might have I probably wanted to call him Irving the thing came back and I could hardly uh, wait to start writing the copy all of a sudden, as I'm looking through the drawings, I see this nut on a surfboard flying through the air. And I thought, Jack, this time you've gone too far. The nut on the surfboard was a silver surfer. Surfer In this story, he turned on his master, came to the defense of Earth, and a comic book superstar was born. One of the most popular Marvel heroes had popped up where no one expected, just like that. The surfy, sur surfer became a source of uh, special contention between Lee and Kirby. 
<clears throat> these guys seem like they were button heads all the goddamn time. Oh, yeah. So what added to this is Marvel was launching a Silver Surfer comic. Stan was doing it with another arm artist, uh, John Buscema. In fact, the first issue already heading to the press detailed an origin that Stan had devised for, as he called him, the Sentinel of the Speedways. Jack wasn't told about this, and it killed his own plans for the character and a story he had already drawn. Lee's origin also ran contrary to Kirby's view of the story. Jack saw the surfer as a character formed of pure, pure energy, one who had never been human. <coughs> and this isn't how Stan drew him. That might have been the... <sighs> so... You know, to, by this time, the relationship with Stan was deteriorated in so many ways. Marvel was hot. Marvel was getting great press. Awful lot of it was in Stan's favor, which had been only natural. Stan was the editor. Stan was the guy who welcomed reporters to his office. While Jack was at home drawing Nick, Nick Fury, Agent of Sears, to S.H.I.E.L.D. Stan also gave a much better interview, as I said earlier <coughs> I mean the guy sounds like he was just grumpy by nature though yeah <coughs> like when you described the office in the dungeon I was like wow that's a shitty place to work and then you said it's his choice he works from home I was like oh that just makes him like a fucking weird hermit yeah well you can see with all the tensions why he wouldn't go, want to go to the office. I mean, yeah, but get some goddamn sunlight. Go get a sandwich, something. <laughs> fuck, lighten the fuck up. You wonder why people see you as a dickhead. You're probably not, all grouchy coming out in the sun. I'm, it's burning. I'm not just going to hand out my traveling sandwiches. Hey, <laughs> that's a good line. I like that one. <laughs> I, it was written by a good friend of mine. You should hear him perform sometime. Oh, thank you, Dad. For the two of you listening, that's part of Johnny's comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I my confidence is that we're the only ones that are going to hear this. <laughs> uh, Jack complained. Uh, one of his biggest complaints was pieces... Uh, that he had helped draw and helped create. Uh, Stan was identified as the sole creator, sometimes even with Captain America. Lee pleaded not guilty, but he had he said he had no control over what reporters wrote. Once when the Sunday uh, oh, that's a smooth move. New York Herald Tramboon ran a major feature on Marvel. Stan made sure Jack was included in the interviews, but it didn't matter. The published article still painted Stanley as a creative genius and Jack as a buffoon who took orders. That's yeah. like some that's like some pimp shit. For real. He's like, look, baby, I can't I can't uh, control what them reporters say about me, baby. And then on the big one, he's like, Look, baby, I tried to include you. I, I can't control these reporters, but like that sounds like some real manipulative shit. 
So as Marvel grew and Stan got busier, Jack was inventing all the plots for the comics they did together. He'd figure out an issue, draw it out, write notes to Stan in the margin explaining what was going on. Sometimes Stan's scripts would merely paraphrase what Jack had written. When they did, Jack would resent that he was receiving no credit or pay for what he was contributing to the writing. Sometimes Stan's would deviate widely from what Jack had intended. Jack didn't like that either. He loved the stories he developed and would often feel that Stan's word balloon stripped some of its meaning or inverted a key concept. Jack especially uh, resented uh, when Stan would take the first part of the story in a different direction than he wanted. Not only did Jack feel his work was being harmed, but it was also meant he'd have to redraw the last half without pay, of course, to correspond. Hey, I get it. You know, your, your creativity is getting stifled a little bit and you're having to do all this extra work. Uh, slow it down, Jack. Just, just wait, wait, wait to finish that extra part. But uh, Kirby had four kids at this time. Um, he needed money. The only comic book company that so, have... so he came out of that dungeon. He came out of that dungeon a couple times. So. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe it happened in the dungeon. Hey, oh, right on the drawing board. Come on, baby, I got to finish this panel. <laughs> Lift up that scored. I got. Captain America to write. Hey, the ink ain't the only thing that's wet down here, honey. <laughs> oh, man. So the only company that would have offered as much was DC was uh, Kirby was still persona, non grata. Not only were several ed editors there hostile to the idea of Jack Kirby, but Jack had been told about an understanding DC still distributed Marvel's product, and there was an agreement, Jack was told, about not raiding another, another's talent pool. Marvel wouldn't compete for artists by raising rates. DC, in turn, would not rob Marvel of the indis indispensable services of Jack Kirby. Hey, look, fellas. Office meeting at DC this morning, okay? One agenda. You see Jack Kirby, you beat the dog shit out of that little motherfucker, okay? He's not to be on the premises. So at this time, Jack became defiant. He slowed down his work pace. Um, as his wife would later say, no more silver surfers until he gets a better deal. This was agonizing for someone like Jack, but he did it. At least he tried to. When a new idea came to him, he would jot it down on a scrap piece of paper and lost it. Once he got careless with a cigar and started a small fire in his dungeon, lost over 50 concepts. What are you doing? Jack is a mess. Right. I can understand it, man. Could you imagine putting out this much artwork and creating this much and just being told, oh, we'll talk about your pay? Yeah, I mean, that's nuts. I mean, it is crazy. But, like, at what point are you just like, look, man, shit ain't working here. It's not going to work at D.C. I got to find some other shit to do, or I got to come up with my own shit. Like, it's crazy. 
So Jack's plots and designs were on TV shows. His art was on toys, but he wasn't. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Yep. Let me ask you a question. If Jack Kirby decided, right in the height of all this, he decided, okay, I'm not drawing no more nothing, and just completely stopped drawing everything. Would that have crippled Marvel? Uh, I mean. It could have. They had other great artists, but I think with the output that Kirby had, I think they would have definitely felt the loss. That's what he should have did. Yeah, but he had four kids. Yeah, I mean, I feel it, but hey, we're all going to be a little hungry tonight, baby. We're going to eat better tomorrow. Tell them, motherfucker, scrunch up. Get out there, sell some newspapers. Shit, what are you, six? You ain't got a job, you little lazy bastard? <laughs> they got to bring some grains and rice home too instead of fighting in the goddamn street they're all just out street fighting just go work your fucking newspapers so at this time like uh bob kane the official creator of batman made a million dollar deal with dc comics another writer there named bill finger demanded a better deal including higher rates and health insurance um but these guys and at were, the time I'm sure when they heard that million dollar deal motherfuckers were like whoa we can't even believe this this ain't even real right it was common knowledge in the business that though he hadn't received the best uh, credit line uh, Finger has created as much of Batman as Bob as Kane did maybe more but he was fired for asking for rights uh, oh, this, that's, this, that's what they do to people this lesson wasn't lost on Kirby. Kane, who had been recognized as the creator of the successful property, had gotten rich. Bill Finger, who hadn't, had gotten fired. Then one day, Goodman sold his company, Perfect Film and Chemical Corporation, acquiring his publishing empire for a price Kirby described as less than the value of Ant-Man alone. Jack would point Ooh. out to the reported amount as proof that Goodman was a man lacking vision. I can never get what I was worth out of him because he had no idea what his company was worth. The sale was executed with swift, almost surgical precision. One day it was rumored. The next day it was done. The only impediment had been Stan Lee. The new owners didn't know Jack. Uh, but they read enough of their magazine articles to know that Stanley was the creative genius behind Marvel. They would not purchase the company without him. <sighs> Good men encouraged Lee to sign a three-year contract so that he could close the deal. Lee did so loyally, receiving a raise in base pay and a promise from Goodman. I'll see to it that you and Stan's wife never have to want for anything as long as you live sounds good uh kirby's lawyer contacted the new owners to tell marvel had two creative geniuses the response was on the lines of don't be silly stan created everything and the artist just drew what he told him to draw oh wow yep love. oh yeah i mean that's kind of ballsy though it's kind of arrogant to be like, contact my lawyer. Tell these motherfuckers they got another genius here. Like, that's that's like real diva-ish. They must not know who I am. You have to alert them. 
So, so in 1968, Jack was still um, asking for a, a good deal. Um, not only was he refused, but he was lectured like a child. The company he was told how to do business the way it did. Any other financial setup, and they'd been bankrupt by week's end. Uh, Kirby didn't believe that, not at all. In fact, he quite the opposite. The business he told everyone would have to change it, or that attitude would destroy it. He just feared it wouldn't change in time for him to collect. Then, See, that's a shame because there are people around him collecting. Then the owners of Marvel just stopped talking to Kirby and his lawyer. Goodman, who stayed on, yep, Goodman, who stayed on to run the company for its new owners, wouldn't talk to him either. The only person that would speak to him was Stan, who kept saying, I have nothing to do with that. Stan was too busy jockeying for his own place in the new operation. This is wild. So he's getting left behind pretty much. Right. Poor Jack. What a shame. Yep. Um, so like and it'd be later said, like uh in a couple documentaries I watched, um Mark Evaner, who wrote this wonderful biography that I got a lot of this from, uh, which I believe you should check out. You saw it, Johnny. Kirby, the King of Comics. It has a lot of Jack's original artwork. It's it's a really great yeah, book. Yeah, it was very nice. And, uh, it was a beautiful book. He would later say um, <laughs> that Stan would tell people, I don't know why Jack's mad at me. I didn't do any of that to him. I didn't deny him pay. And Mark said to him, um, yeah, but you never helped him out. You never stood up for your friend. Yeah, I mean, there, there can be arguments made in both directions. That's rough. So there are many incidences that caused Kirby to quit Marvel in 1970, but they all came under two different headings. One was the firm's refusal to make any short, sort of long-term financial commitment to him. It wasn't that the money wasn't good, it just wasn't guaranteed. And it could end abruptly if his health failed or one of the new owners just plain wanted him gone. The other category was that Joe felt he'd done a lot more than having just drawn up Stanley's ideas. They were his ideas too, and sometimes more his than Stan's. Jack wanted that acknowledged. Over and over, there he was refused, and just too many slights. Some perhaps, um, but it was unmistakable. One of the last draws came when a mail order firm was doing business with Marvel engaged Kirby to draw some posters of the Marvel heroes. Jack drew eight great drawings, which in a rare move, he inked himself. Then someone at Marvel decided that the pro proposed line had too much Kirby in it and ordered that oh, four, wow. four of Jack's posters were to be replaced by other artists. So right there, Kirby was insulted. And since he has never compensated uh, for the four unused posters, financially harmed. 
Uh, someone at Marvel liked the design of Jack Holt's poster, but they felt it should be illustrated by the artist who was on the Hulk comic at the time, Herb Trimp. Trimp was told... I, you know what? Honestly, I, I can agree with that. Yeah, I kind of get it too, but <coughs> Kirby was the original artist on the Hulk. Which, yeah, I mean, I understand how he feels, but I understand how the company feels too. The current design is the current Hulk. So basically, uh, this guy, Herb, just redid the whole poster. Uh, it just, the poster became a nagging symbol to Kirby of just what his relationship with Marvel was. Uh, he created something that was potentially profitable for him, but he hadn't received a cent and someone else's name was signed to the work. He felt so underappreciated. Right. So, uh, in 1969, the Kirby's moved west. The main reason was daughter Lisa's asthma and her need to live in a drier climate. But Jack had another reason for hauling his drawing table across country. And it was the, it was the last thing packed up, and it was the first thing unloaded in California. As soon as it was set up, he started drawing Fantastic Four. What was it? His easel? Yeah, his drawing table. Okay. Uh, Kirby had hopes that being close to Hollywood might bring him entry <laughs> to the movie business. There was nothing concrete, but it dawned on him the kids who'd grown up on his work would soon be old enough to run the studios. Maybe one of them would be, hey, let's get that guy who did the comic I love. It was worth a try. Film seemed like the next logical outlet for his creativity, and besides, he had to go somewhere. He found one possible avenue of escape, and maybe it followed him out from New York. You know, that's not that's not a bad train of thinking at times. It, it seems like it's worth a shot, you know what I mean? Right. Like, we're all just waiting for our opportunity. Like, personally, me, I'm just waiting on Jack Black to die so I can hop in his spot. Oh, yeah. Kirby's asked uh, DC's two senior editors, Jack Schiff and Mort Weisinger. Schiff was still angry over the um, some mishaps in the 50. Weisinger's anticipation, yeah. Uh, was dated back to the days when Simon and Kirby refused to take uh, editorial direction from them. Oh, man. So, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> Kirby was led to believe that there was an understanding between DC and Mar Marvel not to rate talent, especially him. It flowed. It did not from the fact that Independence News um, distributed Marvel's wares, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> so he was offered a job at DC. Jack worked some more for Marvel, fought some more with Stan. There were more articles about how Stan single-handedly created Marvel. There were more pages that had to be redrawn because Stan would decide what, when he wanted something different from what Jack had penciled. 
Stan thought Jack was getting sloppy with his plotting. Jack thought Stan was getting sloppy with his dialoguing. Other intentions, including oh, the dust. Back and forth. Yeah, there's another dis dust up over the Silver Surfer comic. Uh, the book wasn't selling, and Stan assigned Kirby to do one issue to launch it in a new uh, direction. This rekindled anger over the how the character had been rem removed from his creative purview. Stern Stan's fear was that the surfer had not worked as a lead character because he was too much a pacifist. He should be more powerful and aggressive, uh, Lee reportedly told Jack, and they intended to rename him the Savage Silver Surfer. This was to Kirby an utter inversion of how we saw the hero but he saw no reason not to give Stan what he wanted and the story he crafted. This surfer, uh, previously a character of infinite peace with the love of mankind, vowed to make the world aware of his power and to battle them on their own terms. A few months later, uh, when it was announced that Kirby was joining the competition, some readers who had been unaware of the behind-the-scenes battles wondered if the surfer hadn't been speaking for Jack Kirby. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Oh, man. All the time uh, Kirby was working without a contract, the old one with Goodman, which is called for a certain amount of work for a certain amount of time, had expired. Everyone at the new Marvel was just too busy to address his need for a contract. The first week of January, 1970 a contract arrived in the kirby mailbox the new owners had new lawyers and the new lawyers had new demands although the terms under goodman's ownership had not been good these were worse no raise no credit not even security marvel could just do about anything they wanted to him, including fire him whenever they felt like it. If he signed, he can never sue them for anything uh, they'd done to him in the past or uh, anything they'd do to him in the future. There are troubling clauses, uh, even more uh, onerous than the previous. So no, so signing was out of the question. Jack couldn't yeah, do it to himself. Awful. Jack couldn't do that to his family. He got his attorney involved, but perfect film Marvel still wouldn't talk to his attorney. The lawyer or executive from perfect film called Jack directly. The, this is Kirby's account uh, as he described in 1970. The caller asked when they would be receiving the contract. Kirby said he needed changes. The caller said there would be no changes. Take it or leave it. Sign it or get out. Jack protested he was too important to the company to be treated this way. The caller told him he was nuts. Stanley oh, created, wow. created everything at Marvel and that uh, could get any idiot to draw up Stan's brilliant ideas. Woo! They're just being just so persnickety. Uh, Kirby hung up the phone, phoned, uh, his buddy Infantino and changed companies. The comic book universe trembled. Jack was never happy at DC. Like everything else he did, he did it with maximum effort, but DC wasn't where he belonged. It wasn't his company or his style. 
that a DC com people still believe that a DC comic shouldn't look like a Kirby comic. Jack said at Kingdition he would work with a writer who would provide a full script, all the plot, all the words lined up in front, or he'd write the script himself. What he would not do is plot and draw a comic for someone else to dialogue. That had long stopped working for him, uh, both profession and creatively. If you didn't fill in the balloons, Jack explained, they don't give you any credit for writing. He also wanted his oh. stories to remain his stories. Jack would fill in the balloons for most of what was the remainder of his career. Um, some loved his writing, some hated it. Some who loved his work with Stan were just plain bothered by the difference. They wanted him back on Fantastic Four, or at least doing comics what that read the same. What was he writing for at DC? Um, I will tell you here in a second. He started writing like the New Gods, uh, Dark Side. Um, <sighs> so almost that everything. Controversy. Didn't Dark Side come up, come around the same time as um, what's his name? Uh, fucking Thanos. I think so. And like one guy was like, oh no, I came up with this idea and I know I did. So in the first year he started as a writer, artist um, of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. The stories circulated that he said, give me your worst selling book and I'll make it your best selling book. Jack did talk, oh, <laughs> talk like that. But Jimmy Olsen wasn't their worst-selling book. What did happen was that he was in, invited to pick any current comic and do whatever he wanted to it. That was how little the company was committed to do anything it was than publishing. Jack gave the line the once over and didn't see one he wanted. But then Jack was never comfortable taking over someone else's character, displacing another voice with his own. Man. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, man. You hanging in there all right? Yeah, I'm hanging. Uh, so DC insisted. So he said, give me whatever book doesn't currently have someone assigned to it. He hated the thought of kicking a fellow prof professional off an assignment, especially if the guy's income might suffer for it. As little as Kirby belonged at DC, he belonged less on Jimmy Olsen, a sappy comic book about a young reporter who was associated with Superman. The idea of Jack retooling Superman had been suggested most likely to piss off the hero's outgoing editor, Mort Weisinger. However, Olsen seemed like a place where Kirby could demonstrate what he would do with that property. Uh, the trouble was that Superman was DC's most valuable asset. Uh, later on, the company would not only tolerate but encourage different interpretations of that asset, but back then they fretted that Jack's renditions of Jimmy and his pal didn't look right. It was like, give us a new Superman, but make sure he looks and functions like the old one. Jack's version did not. So other artists were brought in to redraw the book. 
making for an odd mix of styles on every page. Yeah, that sounds weird. The first Kirby issue sold through the roof, then numbers began began a sluggish decline. Jack thought the problem was that the readers, as proven by the initial entrance, wanted his take on Superman. Due to the retouching, they weren't given giving it uh, the office consensus was that Jack's stories were too unusual and disconnected, and they were odd, especially for that book. <clears throat> they ranged from visiting uh, from a visit to a planet in a basement where everyone based their lives on monster movies from Earth to a two-issue uh, guest appearance by insult comedian Don Rickles. <laughs> So, in 1972, he began a new effort, a new universe of characters pulled from the stack of ideas that he withheld from Marvel. He imagined a new order of God, uh, second generation to the kind he left behind in the Thor comic. In this new mythology, they dwelled on a planet that had split. Thereafter, the good ones lived or left for Earth from a world called New Genesis. The bad ones inhabited the dank and forebody and apocalypse, the domain of intergalactic Hitler, known as Dark Side. The Uber story we intergalactic through. Hitler. Yep, it was another <laughs> franchise, another way to unleash a, a bevy of characters and volume, and he foresaw endless possibilities. Uh, the forever people featured teenage gods patterned after the use that Kirby was observing all around him. In the midst of the Vietnam era, uh, Jack was wholly on the side of those opposing uh, Richard Nixon and the ongoing military action. He saw ideal, idealism, passion, and a better future in them and sought. Uh, to infuse his forever people with the same hopes, the same sensibility, uh, inheriting a world made dangerous. The New Gods was the cornerstone title, focusing mainly on Orion, a warrior of New Genesis, while also would be revealed the strange son of the master villain. <sighs> Just a few years later, Star Wars would be a grand hit in Hollywood, and some of Kirby's readers noted similarities. A new gods Orion's called upon a power called the Source in confrontation with his father, Darkseid. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker called upon a power called the Force when he battled his father, Darth Vader. Huh. George Lucas, you piece of shit. <laughs> Lastly, there is Mr. Miracle, the super escape artist who was inspired by a previous career of Jim Starenko, new generation comics creator who became a Kirby friend and champion, but is also inspired by Jack's own feelings of confinement and his own career and his internal grasping for some way to break free. Jack had intended to begin the books, pass them on to others under his supervision, and move on to bigger ideas. Um, people, however, wanted Jack to stick with the titles, so he did, turning them into a foundation of intense and highly personal epic. For reasons unknown, the umbrella title 
uh, became the fourth world or sometimes Kirby's fourth world. Proud as he was of his world, Kirby sweated uh, its reception. Some readers found it too sprawling with new concepts introduced at a dizzying clip. The um, operatic dialogue put some readers off as well, but early sales were encouraging. The trouble was the books weren't likely to be Marvel-destroying hits. Uh, just when Jack thought he was finding an audience, Marvel had a major price hike. It's comics rocketing from 15 cents a piece to 25. That was a huge increase to buyers in 71. <clears throat> so sales across the DC line plummeted. A brilliant chess. Uh, uh, yeah, so they're in head to head competition with Marvel. Right on. Yep. Oh, man. Do, 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 do. Oh, man. I didn't expect this to take this long. Oh, well. After months of dwindling sales, DC surrendered, dropped the price to 20 cents. Some books began to recover, but not Jack's. His was a was a wide and complex to some confusing narrative and once you dropped out it was tough to get back in he had produced pilot issues for two new titles um two new titles he wanted to edit with others doing the writing and drawing but DC decided they wanted him doing the new titles instead. New Gods and Forever, Forever People were suspended. And Mr. Miracle soon followed. Jack was crushed. One of the worst days of my life was how he described the day of the call axing the first two. At least for the time being, his fourth world would be an unfinished sympathy, a novel without its uh, final chapters. So the next um, two books he wrote were <clears throat> more sci-fi, Commandi, uh, which was Jack's spin on Planet of the Apes. Uh, oh, okay. And then the, uh, let's see, what was the other one? Um, <clears throat> the Last Boy on Earth and the Demon. Uh, the Demon was a horror book to the extent Jack Kirby could do a horror book despite the title character's grotesque appearance. It was a work of power and energy and that came from a whole new Kirby mythology. This one derived from Merlin the Magician by way of King Arthur's. Readers lost interest early and it was gone in 16 issues. Another blow to Jack's spirit. DC management was in panic to find something that would sell. Um, the old way was broken. Ever diminishing number of comics the distributors could sell were mostly marvels. Every time Jack got off the phone with New York, he'd turn to Roz and make the same joke about having fled his slave ship only to wind up on the Titanic. Oh boy. Wow. That's a hell of an analogy. Uh, new titles were being invented, released, and then acts with Dizzy and Turnover. If Kirby seemed to be getting more of his books canned than anyone else, 
that may have been because he was creating more new ones than anyone else. One heartbreaker because the vision it offered of the future was so downright fresh and Brizard was uh, OMAC, uh, a hero whose name was an acronym for One Manny, One Man Army Corps. This is another idea Jack had done at Marvel and withheld. There were, there were other books that came and went with little notice. Jack threw three issues of Kid Gang, uh, but DC only printed one. So he's kind of circling the drain. Oh my goodness. Um, Kirby even reteamed with Joe Simon for a comic. Um, <clears throat> so they they started working again, uh, but DC killed uh, it after one book. Um, then he proposed an innovative twist on the good name of the Sandman. Someone news to, mused, hey, maybe if Simon and Kirby get back together, the old... Uh, magic would reignite it was worth a try so jack drew joe's salmon script and maybe there was a tiny spark there they put it out in 1974 as a one shot but it sold well enough to prompt a few more simon was on the outs with the company by then so the few more were written by another writer who wasn't much much in favor with dc uh kirby didn't like the scripts but what really scared him was that the editor uh, and Infantino loved him. It jacked re up his soon to be uh, his expired contract. He'd be writing less and drawing more scripts like those. The ongoing comic didn't sell to readers, but it sold Jack on an idea once for all that he didn't belong at that company. Not that life was all that bad. Jack's favorite labor of the period was a tour of duty on a uh, war strip called The Losers. An ensemble of characters from canceled DC combat titles. Uh, in 1975, when his contract was up, he returned to Marvel, viewing it as the better of two depressing choices. They welcomed him back and let him write, draw, edit his own comics on his own. Somewhere all new, we had the internals, um, the theory that aliens visited Earth in a prehistoric time is also speculation that had long interested Jack, even if he didn't accept it as probable. In a playful mood, he'd argue, can you prove it couldn't have happened that way? Um, Let's see, he was also in charge of interpreting a 2001 A Space Oddity to a 71-page comic in 1976. <clears throat> he would later describe it as an honor, but not a lot of fun. Uh, probably the best. <laughs> the artwork was great, though. <clears throat> this led to an ongoing anthology title which in turn led to a, a spinoff book, Machine Man, about an android fleeing a super, annual, uh, super uh, military industrial complex of the future. Some comics uh, that he did were old friends revisited. Jack returned to Captain America in 76, did a new series of the Black Panther in 77. 
taking both off in new Kirby-esque directions. Many readers were bothered that those directions did not coincide with the tidy intercontinuity of the Marvel Universe. Others disliked Jack's writing style and felt his art was getting sloppy. That eye really was starting to bother him by now, making drawing more painful. His anchors would do what they could to compensate, but it is becoming obvious to anyone who looked past the uh, surface excitement, something was wrong. So definitely his, his eyes starting to cause him issues here and his talents starting to go away. Um, what year is this? Uh, 76, 77. So, okay. Jack, Car Jack wasn't connecting with the Marvel Universe. Um, years after his 70s work, he would be regarded more favorably favorably and even reprinted right along with almost everything else he did time and time again. Some would even say the sales figures weren't as dire as the rumors of the time suggested, but that was later on. Just then he'd stop being Jack Kirby, the guy who created and co-created so many successful comics. With the end of his contract in sight, he was Jack Kirby, the man who did those wonky, unreadable books that didn't sell so great. Jack the Hack, oh, some called him implying that he clearly stopped caring. That hurt him a lot because he's working harder than ever uh, with less and less to show for it except dwindling hope and eyesight. Even his boundless imagination couldn't fathom how things might get any better, especially feeling as much hostility from the Marvel editorial staff as he felt. The one person there he thought respecting him was the editor-in-chief Archie Goodwin. Then Goodwin told him he'd be stepping down in the foreseeable future. <sighs> Jack Kirby, the man who specialized in thinking of things no one else ever thought of, couldn't figure just what it might be. He, he was on his last legs in the comic book industry. That's just sad. Yeah. One second. So you remember how um how he loved comics, he loved drawing. Yes. He became sick of the business. He became sick of oh. still being chained to the board. He got soured by it. Sick of a job that led him to be not but more the same or worse. Nothing was going to change except that his eyesight would fade and he would work longer and longer to draw more and more of the same kind of comic book. <clears throat> how unhappy was he? He was actually talking about not renewing his contract. That's how unhappy he was. Man who'd been obsessed with earning a weekly paycheck since the day his parents told him to go out and earn money was thinking of turning down three more years of financial security. If only he had any idea how he might pay the mortgage and buy the grocery. He didn't, but in 78, an idea found him. He was offered, uh, it was an offer from the Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Studio in Hollywood. The people there knew who Jack Kirby was. Uh, the building was full of young artists who grew up on his work and old timers who valued the hell out of him. Some were doing Kirby swipes as they designed a proposed new show of the Fantastic Four. Instead of imitation, someone suggested, how about if they got the real thing? Took about two sentences. Doesn't Jack Kirby live in 
Marvel, uh, New York, where Marvel Comics has its offices. No, no, he's out here in Southern California on a thousand oaks. They hired him, and the money, while not great, was greater than he'd ever made in comics. Better still, the studio wanted him to do more large presentation pictures, pieces they could use to sell other shows. Drawing big was a much healthier job for an artist with limited eyesight. To say nothing of limited options, suddenly there was air. Suddenly he wasn't trapped. Suddenly he could breathe. Suddenly he wasn't doing the same thing that he had done for four decades. Why not get into cartoons? Besides, he worked in animation before. One animation job led to another. The Depate Freelink Studio wound up producing the new Fantastic Four series, and they wanted Jack to anchor its art direction. Oh. Uh, he was kind of wary, wary of working with Stanley, but he still owned Marvel some months on his contract, so this could count, count again that. So he signed down, got along well with Stan, mostly by not talking about what had happened. Uh, the two of them even turned up again for a Silver Surfer graphic novel. All that plus one new comic series to close out his Marvel pack. The new series, the last he'd do for them was Devil Dinosaur, about a prehistoric planet and an anamorphic uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Jack created it on demand the demand for a comic that a network might buy for a Saturday morning cartoon series. Aimed at a younger audience that seemed to alienate the older comic buying one, it didn't sell to them and it didn't sell to a network, but Jack had fun with it. Like all Kirby failures, it didn't go away. It would be, re, uh, would be reprinted and others would revive and extend his creations, often to great excess. There's, they're still even doing dinosaur, uh, devil dinosaur today. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I would have never guessed. Oh, yeah. I, I believe he's teamed up with a, a kid named Moon Girl. There's another ca uh, cartoon company, Ruby Spears Production. Kirby, uh, Kirby started uh, to work design with them. Um, he did artwork on a show called Thundar the Barbarian. So they, uh, they, the proprietors Joe Ruby and Ken Spears loved what Kirby did and kept him on a retainer for the rest of his professional life. There he found even more to like about the animation business above and beyond was the fact that it wasn't the comic book business. Everyone treated him well. Roz would drive him to the studio twice a week. All the artists on staff would line up to greet him. Over and over, it was Mr. Kirby. I have to tell you, your work is the reason I got into drawing. Oh, that's awesome. Finally, the man is receiving some fucking recognition. Jack liked that. He liked that Ruby Spears gave him the title, most ceremonially, but it was on a business card of producer. When he had his first heart attack, he especially liked the health benefits he obtained through the employer in the animation unit. Had he remained in comics, he believed he would have the cost of the biopsy would have wiped out his family, plunging them into debt.
uh, late in 78, there came a day where you print aside. No, uh, there was no new comic with art by Kirby was on sale. The readers didn't seem to notice, and it didn't bother Kirby one bit. He gotten out of top comics. He was a TV producer. Hey, that's fancy. Mm-hmm. Sourdough and Hollywood. Yeah. So he would write comics here and there, um, just for smaller producers, stuff like that. But he just he he loved the animation. Uh, a smaller company approached him, uh, Pacific Comics. They offered everything DC and Marvel had once told him. Um, Jack had a comic he invented for another new publisher, one who had been able to secure the final financing. It was called Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, I, I don't think they're around. Uh, Jack even wrote for DC again. The new management, Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz, wasn't like the old management. They didn't mind publishing DC comics that looked like Jack Kirby had drawn them. So he revived the new gods. Um, yeah, so. So they started doing these toys and stuff and Jack thought he wasn't gonna get paid again, but not this time. Uh, the owners of DC insisted um, instituted a deal for him, part of the Changing Faces comics whereby creators and new properties would share in the revenues. <clears throat> oh, that's great, great for him. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one life-changing day, Jack finally received something that he never got from Marvel and that he never got uh, from DC. It was a royalty check, the first of many. The amount wasn't huge, but the principal sure was. That's dope. Only took most of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only was DC doing right by Kirby, they re rearranged to reprint his fourth world books, asked him to do a graphic novel that would wrap up his unfinished ep epic. Um, but he he wasn't able to do that. He meant no, but he said yes. Uh, Kirby's gratitude for the uh, uh, for the the comics, um, but he didn't want to say I can't do that. Uh, the making of the hundred dogs was rocky and rough. No one, Jack included, was that thrilled with how it ended without a bang, without a whimper, without even decent sales on the reprints of the grand finale. If the fourth world ha hadn't flopped the first time around, it did this time. This time around, though, oh, he didn't mind a lot. Neither did Jack. He shrugged it off and said, someday new gods will be a hit. You'll see. Marvel started paying royalties, too. 
though they called them something else and didn't make them retroactive. Sales were strong and there were toy deals and TV shows and movie projects. The total amount of it going to the Kirby's was zero. Jack was unhappy. Who wouldn't be? He couldn't even walk into a toy store with his grandson. All the Hulk playthings on display, many of them supporting Jack Kirby drawings made him physically ill. Roz would calm him down and then she'd pick up a magazine, read what Stan Lee or the folks currently doing the Fantastic Four were making and Jack would have to calm her down. Oh boy, this is craziness. Right. So, there's a lot of stuff with lawyers going back and forth, trying to fight for royalties and stuff like that. Um, I believe later in 2014, uh, Marvel would actually retroactive royalties back to the Kirby family and sums of millions of dollars. Well, that's nice. They did it, but a little too late. He, he should have uh, had a bit of a smoother life. But honestly, I don't even know if he would have enjoyed it because all he did was stay in the goddamn basement. Right. What do you want, a nicer basement? Right. But I mean, and I think part of his, and I don't want to say work ethic, I almost want to say obsession, is what led to him uh, not climbing up the ladders more. Right. Get out of the basement, go fucking socialize, get a pulse to the office. What's everybody doing? What's everybody want? So Jack uh, spent the last 10 years of his life being flattered. He was semi-retired, but he was receiving accolades as almost a full-time job. King of comics, indeed. The positive sign won, that, won out, as it always had with Kirby. He really thought about what he hadn't gotten and focused instead on what he had well that's good I'm glad he seemed to have uh, the industry and the fandom rallied around him <clears throat> so I mean <clears throat> he, he got a good farewell yeah um, many of Jack's tributes came uh, via the annual comic book convention in South uh, San Diego the con had started in 1970 with Kirby as one of its first guests of honor. Apart from the year of his heart attack, he intended everyone during his lifetime, watching unsurprised oh, awesome. as the event grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, he said the con would grow until it took over all of San Diego. He said that it, the definition of comics would expand beyond those things printed on cheap paper. It would be about comic books as movies. Comics as television, comics and forms yet to be invented. He said, and this is a quote, it will be where all of Hollywood will come every year to find the movies they'll make next year and sell the movies that they made. No one listened to Jack. They should have. Jack Kirby was a visionary. Yeah, his last one he attended was in 93. Uh, the institution consumed much of San Diego. Hollywood was, like the man said, swarming there to promote current projects and to find the following years. At the big annual award ceremony, a tradition began. Someone on stage would introduce Jack and the whole damned audience, thousands of people. 
who read comics, created comics, and or extended comics into other forms would spring to its feet, applaud the king. They didn't stand up like that for everyone else, but they stood up for Kirby. At the show itself, they lined up to meet him. as more than a desire to shake the hand that had drawn their favorite comic book. It was also a need, in some cases, deep-seated to connect with the man whose work had so inspired them. Just to make comics, just to be able to say, I met Jack Kirby. Right on. He would, he would, he would probably lose his mind if he saw like, like uh, the, the big convention in San Diego in this day and age. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately, we are at the end of uh, Jack's life. Uh, he's starting to um, receive uh, attention, receive the gratification that he always wanted. But sadly, on February 6, 1994, Jack Kirby died of congested heart failure. Oh, that's a shame. Man, if kind of like Van Gogh, if he could only see what his products turned into now. The fact that there are three, four movies out there. There's four Avenger movies. There's a Black Panther movie with another one coming. Like, if Jack could have seen the future, you know? Yeah, it was, it was dope. And he was just uh, really ahead of his time, it seems like. His, his family, though, is keeping his legacy alive. Um, I believe it's his daughter and uh, a couple other people uh, have a nonprofit, a fully online digital Jack Kirby Museum, which is where I got a lot of my research from. They have a lot of great interviews with him. They feature a lot of his artwork. Uh, his granddaughter, I can't remember the name of the nonprofit organization, but she runs a group that uh, provides money to artists out of work. Oh, isn't that nice, especially for the times? There is not a comic book artist nowadays, as I said in the beginning, that do not uh, give credit to Jack Kirby. And there are um, several artists out there that we, that we know their names strictly because they saw what happened to Jack Kirby and they decided to invest in their own uh, intellectual property. So Jack Kirby set the bar for what comics were meant to look like uh, and for how comic book artists were meant to be. Jack Kirby is the fucking king of comics and I will argue that till the day I die. All right, all right. Switch to decap, shit. Because, because there's, there's every couple of years, there's new kings of country, there's new kings of pop, there's new kings of movies, but there's only one fucking king of comic books, and that is Jack Kirby. All right, so we have found the odd hill Dan's going to die on. Oh, hell yeah. I know there's several people that'll die on it with me. No. Kings of... There's only one king of pop, I'll have you know. There's all, and it's always been Michael Jackson. 
No, what I mean is, is there has not been another artist who has been given the moniker King of Comics. There is only one person whose peers felt like, yeah, that man is the king of the comic book industry. Right on. I dig it. But, well, that was a long episode. If you guys stuck all through it with us, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoy doing these episodes. They're so much fun to research. And then I get to talk with my friend for, you know, an undisclosed amount of time. Yeah, this was a fun one. Uh, but next week's for those of you who are like, well, they recorded one episode. When's the next one coming? We already got the next one recorded. It's going to be on the Mad Trapper of Rat River, and it is a fascinating true crime tale. I am really excited for that episode to give out, come out. I know I had fun doing it. I know you did too. Uh, I had a great time. Dan, do you want to tell them why we have that episode ready? You know what? I'll tell them because we are asked backwards and recorded it first. Days ago, I tell you. We recorded that episode two tires ago. Yeah. <laughs> Two tires and one engine. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a rough rough time period. Yep. Uh, two tires, one engine, and a dog's good eye. My dog's a pirate now. <laughs> My dog is Jack Kirby. As long as Abby doesn't get a peg leg, we're cool. <laughs> all right man this episode's been a lot of fun uh thank you for everybody coming in. i'm dan brady you can follow what in the history on instagram and facebook at what in the history pod johnny where can they find you they can find me at facebook.com slash john all right, and both my Instagram and Facebook pages are at DVComedy814. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for learning with us. And we will, uh, or you'll listen to us next week. Everybody have a good night. <laughs>